podcast is brought to you by Uh, 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 here we go Everybody be cool, this is a robbery Need you cool Are you cool? Welcome back, all you inglorious bastards, to the Church of Tarantino podcast. I am your host, the Reverend Scott K., and it is my pleasure to welcome you to our fourth installment of Under the Influence, where each month during our second season, myself, along with my special guest, will be taking an inquisitive look at two films that influenced Tarantino to see if he just referenced them in his films or blatantly ripped them off. Our fourth film that we will be placing under the microscope is Tarantino's first collaboration with his best friend, Robert Rodriguez. I'm talking about 1996 from Dust Till Dawn. And the films that we will be reviewing this month are John Carpenter's action thriller Assault on Precinct 13 and William Wyler's crime noir film The Desperate Hours. But before we get this investigation underway, it is my pleasure to welcome back to the show, making his 11th appearance, host of the Way Past Cool podcast and co-host of the Cheeky Bastards podcast, Mr. Steve Smith. Welcome back, Mr. Smith, and may Tarantino be with you always. Hello, Scott, and hello, everybody. 11. 11 times. I know. Sweet uh... Jesus. That is a lot. This will be your third hosting, technically hosting gig, right? So the first one you did was Reservoir Dogs way back in the day, the first freaking one we ever did. First episode, yeah. Then you were on the Natural Born Killers. You basically did yeah. all of March of last year. You did Natural yeah. Killers. You were the yeah. Bible study host. You were on the birthday celebration. Then That's you right. joined us again in July for Kill Bill Volume 1. You did both uh, Bible studies. And then when we combined it, technically you were on the Whole Bloody Affair one. And then that was it as far as your hosting duties. Then you did the special guest appearances on Reservoir Dogs 30th and Django Unchained's 10th anniversary. And you just recently were the very first guest on the brand new hymnal devotional for Reservoir Dogs. I think that brings us up to date to where you are that now. Does. Sweet that does. fucking Jesus. No wonder we have our own podcast together now because we see a lot of each other. I know. I mean, I've got to be honest with you. <laughs> Although, yeah, as you've just pointed out, I've been on a lot of the episodes. I was disappointed that I missed out on From Dusk Till Dawn because of how much I love it. Ah, like last time. yes. So right. here I am on this one. So that's like... A, here you are. Worked, it all worked out. because I worked out in the end. I love this film so much. <laughs> and I was, I was like, you know, it's kind of one of those things where you're like, oh, I wish I was on that one. And then you're like, hang on a minute. You were on a fucking ton of these shows. <laughs> Shut up and sit down. <laughs> Let someone else speak, goddammit. So I was, you know, I, I, you know, I wasn't begrudgingly. I was just like, oh, I love that film. I, you know, I'd love to talk about that. And here we are. Yeah, like you said. As we record, it's not spring yet. But as you listen to this, my friends, 
It is April. That means it is springtime. I believe we're getting close to baby Jesus's uh, death and then resurrection around <laughs> this time. <laughs> what a fitting film. What a fitting film to have. Exactly. From Dust Till Dawn. Some people Mentally. get killed and then resurrect in the film. A this very Easter <laughs> tie-in here at the Church yeah, of Tarantino. Yeah. Exactly. Now, I have once again brought back your The Way Past Cool podcast claim. Last time we spoke in January, you said there would be some issues. Now, again, we are recording in February, so yes. I will give you the opportunity. I mean, in the next two months, it could change when they're it listening to this. It will be by the end of this month. My birthday is on the 27th of February. There will be a new. There will be at least one new episode by my birthday. Fantastic. So we'll have to have that back in the links now that you've brought yeah, it back. To the Once again, it's resurrected. I, I only do, see... <laughs> This is exactly it. I only do this to annoy you, just to make you have to re <laughs> just to just so you have to re-edit your show notes every That's time. That's okay. Petros, uh, no, I introduced him the last few times as being a part of a show called uh, "Getting to Foe You" that he was supposed to start, and that hasn't started yet. So I've had to drop that. So I, you know, you guys tell me you're doing stuff, and you don't do them. Like I don't know what the fuck to say anymore. It's very very no, crazy. I know. I know. It's in the process and nearly ready. So at least at least one. Well, by April, both. Both will be out. So. That's okay. Actually, I just as I was thinking about it, you are one of three people who have told me something's going to be out and hasn't come out yet. Obviously, you have been talking about getting another Way Past Cool podcast, a couple of episodes out that originally were done. Then we have Mr. Petros, who back in the fall, early fall, late summer, was talking about him and Daryl um, from Cage Rage doing a Willing to Foe podcast called Getting to Foe You. That has not happened yet. And yeah, then I was speaking you. with just recently, the past month, and maybe by the time this comes out, I'll record it with him. I don't know. But my good friend, Mr. Craig Cohen from the Conversation of Jack Rabbit Slims, promised that he would do some more and I would be a guest on them. And that has not happened yet either. Well, ain't you a name dropping son of a bitch? So. I'm just getting a lot of uh, blue balls over here in the podcast land yeah. with everyone just uh, lying to me here. Now, you're the hardest working man in podcast business. Your feelings on this film that was written by Quentin Tarantino co-stars him with Mr. George Clooney and is directed, which must be very weird for him to have done. It must be very weird to have your best friend being a director, having come off the biggest film ever at that time. And now here you are directing him in your film. And that would be Mr. Robert Rodriguez. How do you feel about From Dust Till Dawn? How is the, I mean, you earlier just said that it's one of your favorites. Give us a little uh, rundown of uh, what it means to you. Well, for me, it's definitely Robert Rodriguez's best film, I think. How much of that do you credit the writing of Tarantino? Yeah, well, I was going to say, I think it's probably his best films, but probably written by someone else, um, controversially. But, Fair. Um, but I love From Dust Till Dawn. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm a massive horror nerd anyway. Um, that's up there. I would put it up there with the greats. That's how much. Wow, that's, that's high praise. Because you, you've got an abundance of practical effects in there still. Yes, you do. From Mr. Nick Otero. You know, you've got George Clooney in one of his first... Uh, that's I mean, his breakout role. Yeah, I that's mean, I his, I'm the, no longer the sexy heartthrob TV doctor. Yeah, but he did TV the Peacemaker doctor. first. Yeah, but, but that, that was okay. That didn't work. That didn't work. No. Um, but... In this, he's a complete badass. You've got Tarantino's best role, I think it's fair yes, to say. Yes, best role, yes, yes. Best role from his non-films, yeah. And at that point, to see Harvey Keitel oh, in a B-movie, yes. in a horror, in a gore, in a splatter flick, basically, yeah. was something else. There's just so much about the film. To me, I mean, I, do you know what one of my biggest regrets is? Well, not regrets, but knowing the switch halfway through. 
I would love ah, to have seen. I, I would love. I would love to have seen from dusk till dawn, not knowing it was going to turn into a vampire movie halfway through. I think that's one of the the things that makes it so genius. If it's the first time you could see it, is when you watch the first half, it's a Tarantino crime film. No you know, question. it's a Tarantino crime film, no and question. you're like, man, this is definitely Tarantino. And then yeah. when yeah. we get to the titty twister, it turns into a Rodriguez uh, yeah. B movie, and it's phenomenal. Absolutely. Because I was, um, I was still buying. I mean, I was still buying. I think that um, Fangoria was on its last legs at, at that point. I don't think horror was that great at that point. So that was the, that was un- unfortunate that the the you know the articles I was reading in Fangoria kind of gave it all away. Yeah, it, it would have yeah. just been great to have to not know, just to turn up at the, yeah. you know, to turn up at the at the cinema and think you're watching, you know. The guy who made Desperado has got a new crime movie out with George Clooney yeah. and Harvey Keitel. Yeah. That would be enough, I yeah. think that's fair to say. Oh, Tarantino's yeah. written a movie, you know, Rodriguez is directing it, and it's got George Clooney and Harvey Keitel in it as some kind of... Um... And Juliette Lewis, who was phenomenal in it. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And, you know, it's, I think it's a crime thriller. So you could imagine it's going to be a crime yeah. thriller. Um, yeah. And that would have been enough to get me to go to the cinema anyway. But So I'd have just loved to been that have that kind of ignorance that i do not know i mean this 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 is just a great movie from start to finish yeah. it's very well paced there's so many great iconic moments yep. i mean from the get-go as well you know in the gas station i guess we get introduced to mr earl mcgraw for the first time the great michael parks exactly yeah i mean that whole that whole sequence is is just absolutely yeah. classic and yeah. you know unforgettable Really, just the whole thing because you know you get the the conversation he has with <laughs> I can't remember the actor's name. Um, oh, uh, yeah. Oh, Hawks, God. Something um, Hawks, is it? Yeah, yeah, Hawks. Yeah, yeah. Um, so he's having the conversation, which is which is funny, and then you know then it's revealed that um you know the the Gecko brothers are there and they've got hostages as well. You know, so that whole just that that what I guess I don't know how long that is twelve minutes, ten minutes that that sequence. Yeah. You know the dialogue. I'll turn this place into the fucking wild bunch. It's just <laughs> yeah. top class. I mean, you know, we call it a B movie, but it's not really a B movie. I don't. I know where you're. I know what you're yep. saying. What I mean is, I think this is like the problem, or not not the problem, but the thing with Grindhouse as well is that you know these are. These are guys who understand grindhouse movies and B movies, but they're operating on a high level, I think. Yeah. But it is, I mean, in comparison to everything else that that they've had going on in their careers, it probably is a it is a B movie. But it's, it it wants to be a B movie as well. So you know, it, it's but it's got it's got that next level element of class from the writer and director, let alone the top notch yeah. cast they've got. You know, not just the you know the the cast itself, as we pointed out. So. Yeah, just um, a brilliant um, crime movie that turns into an, an amazing horror movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, I do believe, in my personal opinion, that it's probably Robert Rodriguez's best movie. I would agree. It's, it's my favorite of his as well. Or Sin City. No, no I, Maybe like, Sin I do City. like Sin City a lot. I might give Sin City the edge. Yeah. No, that's, you know, I mean. But but we're splitting hairs here. Yeah, we are. You know what I mean? I mean like, yeah. if someone said, do you want to watch either of those movies? I wouldn't say no. no and again, Tarantino. Tarantino met up with him on that one. Yes. Involved with both. Yeah, and really, you know, what a pretty fucking cool double bill as well. Oh, God, yes. Absolutely. Yeah. He could go all out and throw yeah. machete in there as well. <laughs> <laughs> Machete's a great B movie, too. Yeah, no, I mean, that, I mean, that is really. And as I've said about his uh, death pro- or his uh, grindhouse version, I've always said that. Tarantino made the better movie, but Rodriguez made the best B-movie homage. Planet Terror 
is total B-movie homage, complete grindhouse homage. It is everything that a grindhouse film from that era is. Tarantino went out and made his own version of a slasher. So they're they're both separate there. And I know you're not a huge fan of, of that, but when I look at the two of them, who made the best grindhouse film? It was Rodriguez. Who made the best movie of the two? Tarantino. Is I think, that... Yeah. No, that's a fair assessment. And I think actually Tarantino made the cult movie. I would go that. I yeah. would go. I would. Yep. Yeah, I would even give him that because he's clearly there's a lot going on. There's actually. Do you know what? I'm not going to say too much because there's too much to go into. With I know. House. I know. We, and we're not even here to talk really exactly, about the film. Exactly. <laughs> so I'm going to. I could see whether I could see us going completely off on a yeah, tangent yeah. here and talking about, um, you know, car chase movies, Italian giallo, yeah. sla- you know, American slashes yeah. too. We could be. We would be. This would be a rather long episode. So, but yeah, you know. Um, but anyway, back to from dusk till dawn. There's just too much. You know, you're going to have to ask questions here because I'm. In my head, I'm all over the place with everything that I think is amazing about the film. As you said, you want to have some questions. Now, normally I send my guests the questions, but since you've been on many times, the first time you did it, you got uh, a set of questions. Yeah. Everyone got. And then you were the first to get the second set of questions because you hosted again. Now, what we've done is there is an actual extra set of questions now that I've come up with because now you and Craig Cohen have hosted enough times where it requires you to have extra set of questions. Now, I didn't send them to you, so you're going to get these Fresh off the cuff. You're not going to get a chance to uh, stall. I have four new questions for you. Thanks for putting me on the spot. You're welcome. And here we go. The first one. What kind of job is Mr. Purple on and his crew pulling for Joe? Because Joe says, you're not Mr. Purple. Some other guy in another job's Mr. Purple. You're Mr. Pink. So what job is Mr. Purple and his crew pulling for the great Joe Cabot? Well, Mr. Purple's a code name. Who's to say that isn't who Seth Gecko is? Uh, <laughs> and all right. the crime that, all and right. this is the crime that they're on the run for. So that's because that's right, yeah. The Gecko brothers are on the on the run after pulling off some crime. Well, yes, so they yeah, so he broke him out of prison and then they did they rob a bank? No, he broke him out of prison and they take a and all they do take yeah, they take a yeah, bank exactly. hostage. So they must have robbed a bank too, yeah. So who got broke out of prison? Um Seth. Right. Did. So Richie's Mr. Purple and he's broke oh, and the job he right. got was to break Seth out of prison. And, nice. and they've now bro- like they robbed this. the bank and that's gone tits up, as we say in the UK. And now they're on the run. It's a very odd saying. <laughs> it's gone tits up. That's what I... <laughs> like, it, like, it's like the saying, like, uh, you can't have your cake and eat it, too. Dumb sayings. Who the fuck ever has cake and doesn't want to eat it? That's stupid. This is true. And most times, and I don't mean to sound this very misogynistic or sexist, but if you're a male and someone says, hey, it's going tits up, like, that sounds like, a, like you're, yeah, that sounds like I want to be a part of this. They're yeah. tits yeah, are maybe up. I what, what's chose, wrong with maybe that? Maybe I could have chosen better. <laughs> no, th- th- it's, it's a great, it's a great turn. <laughs> yeah. It's just that you think of those it's phrases gone to shit, and they're terrible. Basically, you know, the plan has gone to shit and they're now on the run. So, yeah, so maybe Richie's Mr. Purple. All hey, right, I like yeah, it. You know, hey, come on. Number two, do Max and Jackie ever end up together? Or is their love story over at the end of Jackie Brown when Max decides to take the phone call and let Jackie go off by herself to Spain? Breaks my heart. I love that film. No, I, don't, I think that was it. You know, Jackie went off into the sunset and left Max behind, which gives it that, you know... That kind of feminist angle. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because always the guy leaving the woman behind. This is the, the woman leaving yeah. the guy behind. She's no, she's a, yeah. she doesn't take no shit. He knows it. It also gives it a very 
realistic ending to it. You know, like not everything's a fairy tale happily ever after ending in, in life. You know, sometimes you say goodbye to a person, she goes to Spain, finds some other dude over there, he stays here, and that's that's it. You know, yeah, it ends with that kiss and, you know, her driving away, you know, singing to herself in the car, daydreaming about her escape to paradise, and it all worked out, you know? And obviously, yeah, there's that, oh, but what if? What if they would have got, you know? I know. But though, what ifs are okay too in the movies, especially. Yeah. So, no, I think you know she she went off, she rode off into the sunset, like all badasses do, and leave <laughs> and leave the one who loved them with all their heart behind. Because they, you know, it's like um, she loves him so much that she don't, she can't guarantee that she's not going to, you know, face, you know, further problems and she didn't want to bring him into it so you know there's all kinds of romantic ideas behind that and i think that's the fine way to end it yeah so i think she leaves him behind and that's it and they never see each other again number three we had this discussion a little over seven eight months ago is that diabolical cunt l driver dead or alive did she survive being in the desert with no food or water with no ability to get out blind and trapped in a trailer with a black mama snake. Did L survive that? Or was that curtains, as they say, for L Driver? You know what? I think I'm going to stand by, you know, what we said before, our ideas for Kill Bill 3. That, <laughs> you know, they were some great some great ideas. Everybody should go back. They were. Everybody should go and back. I, mean, I don't want to tell them that, go back, check that Tarantino out that may or may not be listening to them. But go you know. back, check that episode, everybody. There's some great <laughs> ideas in that episode. Um yeah, I think, you know, obviously she was trained as well by Pai Mai. Mm-hmm. So through some crazy martial arts magic, she yep. <laughs> manages to uh, survive. And there's also that, that little creepy guy, wasn't there? It worked. <laughs> the, yeah, the little, the little midget dude. Yeah, I think he shows up in Sin City too. Um, and I think he's actually, the actual actor has passed. He, like, he has actually died. Oh. The guy who well, actually, the know, actual man. Speaking of resurrection, you know, maybe. Um, <laughs> but no, in 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 my ideas, maybe you know what I'm saying is there are people who may go to check on Bud, however much of a loser he is. So he may go back to the caravan or, or his whatever it is where yeah. he lives. I don't know what you call them over there. Um, we call them trailers. Tra- of course, trailer park. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, and you've got uh, carry out. Yeah, uh, so we, I didn't yeah. know that till I saw Snatch. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, exactly. that's what they meant. There we like go. Like dogs. Um, yeah, so there, there's every possibility that someone will go back to Bud's trailer anyway and maybe nurse her back to health enough to get away and well, she'll probably kill them too and steal their car. But, <laughs> um, but I think, yeah, so I think maybe someone, go, someone goes back to Bud's trailer, helps her out, she kills them, goes on the run and gets their car and puts together the plan that we put together. On the 59th birthday celebration yeah, on, on the, last on, March. Yeah, definitely go back, check that out. That was some great fun. And we had there's some great, just some great things. <laughs> it was. Just off the top of our heads, I think, some of that stuff yeah. that just came up. So I think, yeah. Yeah, no, I think she definitely, she definitely survived. All right. And our last one. And this is one of my favorites. How do you think Aldo Rain got his neck scar? What are the events that led to Aldo Rain having what looks like a possible lynching neck scar? Or who knows? You tell me, what do you think happened to Aldo Rain before he would go over and collect him some Nazi scalps? I think he was um I think he was hung 
and just escaped the news. That it, sounds personal, sir. Escaped, yeah, escaped, <laughs> it, escaped the news with the help of someone, um, a la Good, the Bad and the Ugly. I think he probably court-martialed, and that's how they dealt with him back then, I imagine. They, they hung him, but he, he escaped. Um, I can't imagine him getting his throat cut and surviving. But yeah, that looks that looks like some kind of burn, some kind of hanging. Yeah, it doesn't look like some kind of knife. Unless, of course, he had his neck maybe. cut and that was the cauterization. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think he was hung, like, like court-martialed for disobeying orders or something like that. Yeah, I, that's all I can really think of. I've got a million... Once again, though, much like the Kill Bill question, we had a whole thing set up for Aldo, didn't we? You know, that could be addressed, <laughs> We did. Or maybe left... Just shrouded in mystery. Kind of like what's in the Yeah, you know, sometimes these things, are, they are just better left to your imagination, aren't they? Well, there's nothing to yeah, talk you, about. You come up with your own mythology. Otherwise, if it's all, you know, if it's all laid out for <laughs> exactly. you, then... It's all wrapped up. If you, you know, you know yeah. everything. So, um, yeah, so I think I think he was hung, but I think we should just, you know, maybe in, in some other Tarantino movie, it could be a throwaway comment made by someone. Like, someone would say, like, you know, uh, there'd be some, like, bad guys, and that'd be like, oh, shit, Aldo's after us, you know? We're fucking doomed. And then someone's, one of them's like, no, someone, who the fuck? Someone's like, man, fuck is he that? is hung. Yeah. Did you know he's oh, hung? Hey. Hung like a horse. But like, no, someone's going to be like, who the fuck is Aldo? And then they, then they someone says, he, he survived the fucking hanging, you know? Well, that'd be it, and that'd be all all you ever knew. There would be no, like, he survived the hanging because he was court-martialed yeah. by blah, 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 blah. Yeah, it'd just be like a throwaway. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, you wouldn't, you wouldn't Flashback. You don't need that. It's just like, he's so badass, he survived the hanging. That's all you need to know. You don't need to fucking, you don't need diagrams every, you know, step of the way. So, yeah. That, he survived a hang, and that's how much of a badass he is. And there we have our second person to do their third guest questions. Fantastic. If you have any more, I'm going to have to fucking start coming up with some real screwball ones because we're on. running out of things. Running out of Bring things to ask. On. Some hypotheticals to ring. The time has come to find out if Quentin Tarantino is a cinematic genius who has put his own spin on the references he's cherry-picked from some of his favorite films that have influenced his career. Or if he's, as his detractors say, a talentless hack who has blatantly ripped off moments from those films and claimed them as his own. This month's suspect is From Dust Till Dawn. Let the investigation begin. That will lead us to our first film. It's time to call our first witness. first witness is the 1976 action thriller Assault on Precinct 13, written and directed by John Carpenter. A highway patrol officer, two criminals, and a station secretary defend a defunct L.A. precinct office against a siege by a bloodthirsty street gang. Made on a budget of $100,000 and grossing $726,000 at the box office with a 7.3 IMDb rating and a 96 critics and 80 audience rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Now taking the witness stand. Assault on Precinct 13. And our first film that is mentioned as an influence on the film from Dust to Dawn is John Carpenter's action thriller, Assault on Precinct 13. Now, before I ask you and I talk about it, one thing I did notice that was a little interesting is in the movie, he sends that uh, lieutenant, he's sent to 
that uh, a precinct nine in the thirteenth district. This is right. Yeah. So I'm just wondering if John Carver just thought assault on precinct thirteen was cooler. Technically, it's assault on precinct nine. Comma, 13th District. It threw me for a loop a couple of times when they were, like, isn't this a th- Precinct 9? That being said, this was my first time seeing this original movie Whoa, of Carpenter's. Really? I have seen the remake, which is fucking shit in comparison. Now, in this past couple of uh, weeks, now obviously we're in April when people listen to this, but you and I are recording mid-Feb. Yep. And as we talked about on uh, the Cheeky Bastard podcast back in February. Shameless plug. That you had watched in January 40 movies because you had the month off yes. for Christmas. Mm, yeah. Now, I have not kept up with you, but I, I'm up there now. I'm getting, I'm probably around 40, but you probably surpassed that. I'm up to 70. I've had the chance yeah. to watch. I'm sorry, I'm up to about did 70. You say 70? I'm up to 74. Jesus. Now, listen, folks, most of those are porn, so we will have to you yeah. know, adjust well, for Well, maybe I'm for not, yeah, I only films. watched 12 yeah. minutes. Long. I mean, he puts it down as watching it. But I've seen two films that I'd seen the remake for. One of them being obviously Assault on Precinct 13. And I recently watched the original Taking of Pelham 1, 2, 3, which is a brilliant oh. movie. The original is a brilliant oh, film. I love love that movie. The remake is shit. Like these two remakes are pure shit. And you would think that, you know, you're remaking films from the 70s. And you would think that, you know, we can get it right. No, they're both far superior films, the originals, than these remakes. And I should have known that. But I think one of my... Um, trepidations from seeing both of those films was because I saw the remakes. So I guess I made the stupid assumption that if the remakes are shit, the originals can't be all that great. Because you know your normal assumption is I'm gonna re- you know I'm gonna remake this, it's gonna get it's gonna be better. But no, it has now been in my knowledge that a remake is usually shit and I should go back to the original. So I was able to do that for both these films and I was absolutely impressed with Assault on Precinct 13. And the one thing that I think I loved about it is what I love about Carpenter, too, is he is such an underrated composer. Like, his synth soundtracks are fantastic. Like It's almost like um, I was recently on an uh, episode of Petros Pasilvas' podcast, and we talked about the Tim Burton film, Edward Scissorhands. And you know a Tim Burton film because of the great score that always Danny Elfman does. Like, you, can, as soon as you hear the music, you're like, yep, that's a Tim Burton film, and that's Danny Elfman. And... As I've watched enough of these, especially the early Carpenters, you know it's a Carpenter film because he scores it. And you hear the synth immediately, and it's just like, yeah, boom, yep, that's a Carpenter film. Yeah. How do you feel about this film and Mr. Carpenter as a composer? Right, firstly, the District um, Precinct 9, District District 13 thing. Yes, sir. I, I think I remember an interview with uh, John Carpenter. And we're in a we're in a crazy eight eight scenario here because because apparently, <laughs> apparently the I think it was the producers who just thought it sounded cooler. I agree because I think the number thirteen gives you a certain feel to it, right? Like the number thirteen is un, unlucky, so why not just make it precinct thirteen? It makes more sense. Yeah, I believe they just they literally did it because it sounded cooler. Just like the, there weren't eighty eight of them, that eighty eight just sounded cool. Yeah, they yeah. Just so cool, firstly, yeah. that's 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 just that out of the way. Right now, I, I love John Carpenter. I, I put John Carpenter up there with Martin Scorsese, Francis Coppola, De Palma, everybody. He's up there with the best. Oh, one. yes. He, he, yes. He, his early films yeah, are... He is, I mean, yeah, all right. He's made as many duds as anyone. So, you know, 
but he's made he's made masterpieces, and I would put him up there with someone like John, he's the closest thing we've got to a modern John Ford. Now, Assault on Precinct Thirteen is my second favorite film of all time. I wow. I think that's high yes, praise. High praise indeed, and not only that, controversially, and maybe I should do a, a segment on cheeky bastards about this, but I actually think it's John Carpenter's best film too. Ooh. I saw this film when I was quite young and it just led this just left an indelible impression on me. Everything about it, quite frankly. Um it's a horror movie to me almost. It's got those that familiarity to it. A hundred percent agree. The soundtrack. The soundtrack is you know, the main thing. It's got quite a laid back jazzy sort of vibe to it at certain points yep. in the film. But the actual Assault on Precinct 13 theme song is just so badass. I can't think of a better word yeah. for it than just absolutely just kick-ass, badass, moody, serious, futuristic. It's all these things, you know, wrapped up, and it just sets the tone for the film. I mean, the, you know, all these things I'm sure we'll get into, but the camp, you know, the, uh, you know, the camera moves, the lights, the, the, I mean, the sound design as well. The suspense is incredible. The kind of, you know, the cop and the criminal teaming up, Mm -hmm. which is obviously a familiar trope now. Yep. But, you know, there was a time when not every film that came out had that, you know, and this was probably not the the usual thing you'd see. But, yeah, I love this film so much. I could literally just watch it at any time and... You know, like I say, John Carpenter, I mean, obviously he made Dark Star first, which was like a a student film that Mm -hmm. they'd done such a good job with that I think they got some more funding for and made it into a feature-length movie. But that's, again, that's a whole other thing. Now, that's that's a great cult movie. That's not perfect. But you can see within that film, you're dealing with someone who knows their shit, basically. They know, they understand cinema on a high level. Um, and Assault on Precinct 13, you know, you've just got this... Yeah, it's like almost like a horror movie to me, you know, and it's like... Yeah. And you can definitely see how it would have influenced something like From Dusk Till Dawn. Yeah. You can see it. It is there. Oh, it's yeah. Well, yeah, there. we'll get into yeah, it. it yeah. is definitely there. But, um, you know, Austin... Is Austin Stoker the, the, the cop? What's the yeah. Name? Uh, That's the actor's name, sorry. Yeah, the actor is... Yeah, Austin yeah. Stoker. Uh, I forget. Yeah, it's Lieutenant something. Yeah, but anyway, him teaming up with Napoleon yep. Will. I mean Wilson. He is the. Do you know what? What a great character Napoleon Wilson is. So sarcastic. Yes. His little quips. Yeah, but the thing is, like his little quips and sarcasms, they're so natural. And he's always asking for a cigarette. Always asking for a cigarette. And <laughs> oh, there's just. I could honestly. I could just talk about this film. But literally, everything he says is a diamond piece of dialogue. And not in the Tarantino <laughs> sense either. It's effortless no. and believable, you know? He doesn't go on these grand sort of par- endlessly, endless paragraphs yep. of cool dialogue. <laughs> he just very much to the point, so sarcastic, he, you know, and they're so natural how they end up teaming up together. And again, like I say, next to Once, next to once Upon a Time in the West by, you know, Sergio Leone. Mm-hmm. John Carpenter is right there, as far as I'm concerned. And Assault on Precinct 13 is just a perfect exercise in like a 90 minute piece of 
a badass and a, you know, and really a, de- a debut sort of arrival of a of an important director. So yeah, full it gets my full seal of approval. He goes on quite a run from that. Absolutely, you know, he goes from this. I think it's Halloween, Fog, Escape from New York. The Thing, Christine, uh, and pretty much up to They Live. He has like a 12-year well, you know, run yeah, of just I mean, like hits, got, and then it yeah, tailors I mean, off the well, it does. It does as it naturally would. But Quite a absolutely, bit. Absolutely, but having yeah. said that... He's got seven or eight films that are just certified gold. Absolutely, and that's enough, you know. That's that's nearly, that's oh, nearly as much as Tarantino himself. I mean, that's actually more than Coppola, if we're if really Oh, honest. that's no question. I, hey, I love you know? the power, okay? But, you know, The Godfather's... Assault, um, Yep. Apocalypse Now, Apocalypse the Conversation. Now. Yep, Bram Stoker's Dracula. Yeah, I mean, I, I haven't said that. I'm, I've got a soft spot for The Outsiders and um, Rumblefish, too. Oh, no, Outsiders. I would put Outsiders in there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, some of the stuff, but I'm, I'm saying, like... Of, you know, but he's not... I mean, but, you know, John Carpenter, people can... Yep. You know, I mean, I've got a soft spot for Ghosts of Mars and I'll say it. That's you fine. You, you can have a soft yeah, spot, but it's, fine. It, you know, it, it even robs quite a bit. It steals, he steals from himself, in a sense, where... He, there's flashbacks yeah. within flashbacks, admittedly. Yeah. <laughs> Ice, you know, Ice Cube delivers, but he always does. You know, um, Natasha Henstridge came in at the last minute to replace someone else. Um, you know, it had its issues, but there's even there is a bit of an assault on Precinct 13 vibe to it as well, actually. But yeah, so John Carpenter for me though, he's up there with the best. Like I say, he's up there with the best of the directors. And like I say, next to Once Upon a Time in the West, I, for me, Assault on Precinct 13 is. My second favorite film, you know. Speaking of John Carpenter, yeah, of course, the thing. How could you say that when these make yeah. when there's the thing and yeah. blah blah? And I'm like, no, they're fantastic too. Obviously, I mean, the thing may be the best horror movie of all time, but to me, Assault is just one of the best films of all time because it's just an effortless badass watch that does waste no time. True. Uh, yeah, we we just kind of get right into yeah, it. Almost. Yeah, it just yeah. gives you everything. You know, just gives you everything in that short span of time. When it opens. I love that the title track. Now this is the '70s, but I love that it opens and one of the you know tells the where they are and says an LA ghetto. It's <laughs> just like we, like, yeah, that's not, <laughs> like we have to be told that there's an LA ghetto. Too, yeah. And it's funny because these guys are just running. And, you know, this is the great thing about some of these movies, though. Like, they just, like, you know, we just got to have a reason for some of this plot to happen. So we're just going to do this stuff. And these guys are running with maybe with weapons. We don't know where they're going or what they're doing. But clearly there's street violence. But all of a sudden, like, in, like in a, they're basically fishing a barrel. All of a sudden, these cops just literally just yell, hey, stop. They literally get the word stop out. And they just open fire on them with shotguns and just obliterate this gang, which is what sends everything into motion. But I just was like, wow, that was well, still very, still very relevant, you know. Yes, as I'm going through films, and obviously one of the the perks of being the age we are is we live through some of these films. So we've got an opportunity to see the evolution of filmmaking. And as I'm looking at one of the films we're going to talk about later that came from 1955, as you watch them, you can see how... Even acting in films and the stuff they did in films has really changed over yeah, time. You, as yeah, you should, see, you as see the evolution of. Yeah. But it is funny yeah. that the actors dying in the seventies has greatly improved from from now. It's it was it was as if no one had ever been a part of like a war and seen a person really die when they were shot. Like it's always like some dramatic like extra body flop where people get hit. So I always like so it's like they're shot and then they have like one last breath and it's just like the whole body just like, does this real contorting throwing their body forward kind of thing. Yeah. It's just, I found it very funny to watch that happen. Now, did you notice, and this was just striking, I don't know if Carpenter's trying to say something. I don't know if we were supposed to see something else from it. 
But the th- there are three guys who are on this transport. This Napoleon being one of them. Yeah. Uh, Rocky's a boxer. Yeah, <laughs> Rocky's yeah. a trainer being the other. Yeah, that's right. Now, and, and some guy who's got who may be patient zero for uh, either Ebola and or COVID. <laughs> yes. He's just, yes. He's absolutely. Just, he's just sick. We never know what he Love. has. Yeah, but but you are glad when he does bite it. You're just like you know, good. I was hoping we would listen well, to this guy cough God the whole did, fucking I... movie. You know, yeah, we yeah. needed that to happen. I mean, he's the reason they have to stop at Precinct 13 anyway, so I guess, you know, that's that's why he has to be sick. Sometimes things are just plot for plot's sake. You have to get yeah. him there. But what I found was interesting is when they are moving the prisoners, the two white prisoners have their hands cuffed in front of them. Every time Rocky's uh, trainer, if for those who don't know, the, the black gentleman, the bald black gentleman with the mustache, his hands are always behind his back. Mm. Maybe I'm just making too much of it as it is, but it was just interesting that I don't feel like it was unintentional because every scene, it's not like, you know, one scene like, oh, hey, you know, well, we forgot he's behind his back. We put him in front of him. Every scene that he's handcuffed, behind his back. Every scene that the two white gentlemen are handcuffed, in front of them. Just a, one of those things I thought, hmm, interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. Um, I don't know what to say about that, really. I'm sure there's, that could, uh, yeah, that seems a little bit um, like, yeah, to me, I think. Intentional? Yeah, I think so. Like if it happens in one scene, it's an accident. Having said that, another, you know, maybe that was um, maybe that was the procedure then, because of the reasons you're you're maybe. probably alluding to. That, again, I, again, I have no other. I just it just was something I noticed, and the first time I saw it, I thought you know maybe they just forgot, or maybe just you know no. some of these guys couldn't get their hands behind their back or something like that. But then, as the film goes on, it's the same for every scene, and you know they don't shoot it in succession. So this is just what they're I'm doing. Sure, it do you know feels what? more intentional. I'm thinking they had an advisor on set, and that's why things were right or wrong. <laughs> they had a cop and say, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. No, that's whoa, how we do it we because of this here? reason. Yeah. And we, I think we yeah. all know what fucking reason that is. <laughs> um, you know, you're dealing, oh, you know, man. so yeah. Yeah, I, I'm sure there's a reason. I don't know what the reason is, but I'm sure there were advisors on set telling them that's how things were done. And that's all I can really say, because I hadn't ever really thought about that before. Now, when I was watching this, this is the first film I have watched where the style of Tarantino's 90s films, and I'm trying to feel if it's because it's in California. Maybe it's just the lighting that's different in California, obviously, than when you're here in New York. But this film, the style of it, especially when they're outside, and before we, you know, because actually once the movie gets towards the end, it's at night, so it's dark, so it's different. But when we're in the daylight, I found that the visual style, this is where Tarantino got it from. Like, if you go, and I should probably get some some side-by-sides, but if you get a side-by-side of some of the outdoor shots and the way just the light and the, the even the film stock looks, and you put it up against, like, either Jackie Brown or Pulp Fiction, God, they are pretty, pretty close. Even the framing, a lot of times, has some similarities to them. And I noticed it immediately. It was very striking, which was awesome because, you know, now I kind of get an idea of where maybe some of, you know, even his sensibilities came from. And obviously over time they have changed because, you know, he's gone on to shoot in 70 millimeter and really Kill Bill, he changes a lot. 90s is where he sticks to, you know, sticks his landings. And even the beginning of this film, I feel, has a carpenter look to it at the beginning when we're outdoors and we're filming things. Just it's, it's like a warm... It's a warm hue almost over the film. It's, it's hard to describe, but when you see it, you see it. I don't know if you saw that, but I, and well, you, no, like I think, you told me you didn't rewatch it because you've seen it enough times. Well, but yeah, now rewatching this with yeah, his eyes, yeah. and this I is think, my first time seeing the film, I noticed it immediately. Yeah, I think I think with both Tarantino and Rodriguez, well, Rodriguez especially, he has more of a fondness for action movies than Tarantino, and. Assault on Precinct 13 is an action movie. Oh, big time. An action movie 
of the likes that hadn't really been seen before at that point. I mean, you look at it now and you can see how that's influenced action movies full stop. But the films that would have influenced Assault on Precinct 13, not I know we're talking about films that influenced From Dusk Till Dawn, but, you know, if you look at, you'd have to then think, well, hang on a minute, you know, John Carpenter would have grown up watching westerns, you know. So this is like, I even think, I, I've often thought that this was influenced heavily by Night of the Living Dead in a way. That's a good one, or even the Alamo. Oh, absolutely. Well, well, definitely Rio Bravo, because um, yep. John Carpenter names himself John T. Chance as the editor of Song Precinct 13 <laughs> after John, John Wayne's character. But what I'm saying is, ultimately, you follow the chain of dominoes. It all goes, yep. goes back to the Westerns, man, always. And I think, like you say, I think... Definitely, Rodriguez, if I would say, I know what you're saying about the California thing and the whole, mm-hmm. I get that completely and I completely agree with you. But on top of that, I would say Rodriguez, Rodriguez is going to be far more influenced by someone like John Carpenter, whereas someone, whereas Tarantino is going to be influenced probably by European directors. But that all wraps up into the same ball, really, because... When you talk about Grindhouse, you know, and that whole thing, you could see where the films that they were referencing, and even you could say Planet Terror is, you know, that's John Carpenter's vibe too. That's John Carpenter, Romero vibe for sure. Absolutely, absolutely, you know, so that, and that's why I said A Silent Precinct 13 really reminds me of a horror movie because if you, if you just, um, change those gang members for zombies. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, most of his, I mean, early movies, uh, Escape from New York. That's a horror there movie. There is something that I saw them films. I saw those films, especially, you know, I, I probably... I was some young, just like you. Yeah, yep. back when I was a kid, though, I probably would. I know I've, I've said I've watched Assault and Police 13 a million times, but I did watch Escape from New York a hell of a lot when I was a kid. And especially yep, me too. a different thing here in the UK, that I, I, that's nice to have the opportunity to mention, actually. I won't go into it. I'll be as quick as possible. But when we went down the video store, there were like 10 movies to rent. Yeah, all these films that you got to see back back in the day, I'm so envious of because we didn't get to see. We got, you know, it, it, there was an era where things were available, but then we had, as you know, we had the whole video nasty thing, and and our rating system was so different. I couldn't go to the store and rent the thing, or Texas Chainsaw Massacre was banned until fucking 1994 or whatever. You know, so we had so we had a whole different vibe. That's why, you know, these films, especially John Carpenter, they left such an impression on me because they were, they were just films that, you know, you know, and we, I've mentioned American yeah. Wealth in London to you before as well. Like, we didn't have the choice, so we rewatched the same things over and over again. <laughs> we didn't, not that we wanted to or loved them, that we ended up loving them that much, obviously, like the Warriors too. Um, but, you know, but uh, especially John Carpenter movies and especially Escape from New York. There was something about Escape from New York, like you say, there's a very weird horror vibe to it. Yeah, because when he first gets dropped off and he finds himself on that street at night and then they're jumping through the walls, like that's coming a... Coming through that's the a, walls, coming up through the... Um, yeah, the ground. coming through the grates. Yeah, yeah. the grates mm-hmm. and the ground. And that's a horror vibe. Something that, that really is something really freaky about that shit, yep. Batman, you know. Yep. Um, so, yeah, you know, but I, I think Rodriguez is probably, probably is a is a very... I mean, I know, I mean, I, don't get me wrong, I know Tarantino's a huge... John Carpenter fan. I've seen enough interviews yeah. with Tarantino. I've seen his enough, first movies. Of course, I've seen enough interviews. I mean, you know, yeah. Jesus Christ, Hateful Eight is the thing, you know. 
But I think, yeah, but this is Robert Rodriguez directing, so we have to come at it slightly. Yes. Well, so I was saying that I just saw that maybe the visual look from this reminded me a lot of Tarantino's 90s. I, know, films. Does, again, no, I, I think some of it was stolen, but I think maybe maybe also the lighting that you get in California and just the film stock they used, it felt like they have kindred spirits as far as the look. And again, this comes out in 76. It's a good almost 20 years before, you know, Tarantino's films. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. You know, because um, I've, I've, read, I've read a lot about Rodriguez. Um, he, he references a lot of stuff like Mad Max and The Terminator. And, oh, yeah. You know, so he's big on that kind of, you know, he needs to get back into doing some more of that shit, if you ask me. I would agree. Anyway, would agree. but uh, yeah, anyway. Anywho. Uh, anywho, yeah. <laughs> Again, it's, that's the problem with these guys. You could go to, you could talk about them forever. Their knowledge of film, what they're going to take influence from and what they want a reference for their own personal reasons. It's all from the same era of, of what we watched. Because we're roughly, you know, around that same age. Yeah, I think you and I are closer to Rodriguez than obviously we are to Tarantino's. He will be turning, or as they hear this, he has just turned 60 yeah, at this point. Yeah. One thing I did notice, and it's during the ice cream truck thing, that was a surprising scene. Well, that's still shocking now. All these things are, are just parts of the ingredients. I'm not saying that this was the exact moment that maybe Tarantino started to think, ooh, I like some of these surprise aspects, but I did not see the little girl getting shot at all. I thought, uh-oh, we're going to have something that would be like a drive-by. Or, you know, she'd like kind of get, because that, that car is falling, going back and forth, and the driver knows that something's up with it. Yeah. And when the girl goes back because she doesn't get the right ice cream, I'm like, okay. So, like, like she's going to get mowed down or hit by the car, something like that. I did not see her getting shot first. Just bam. You know, like, he just turned, like, doesn't even look at it, just bam, and shoots her. And I was like, holy shit. It had, minus the, there was no humor to it. But it had a bit of the Marvin or the, uh, what's her name, and Jackie Brown moment getting shot in the parking lot. It had that feel to it. But Tarantino laces it with dark humor. There was no dark humor in John Carpenter's moment. That little girl gets shot dead. Bam. I just, I mean, it was an instant moment. I was like, holy shit. That was like a QT surprise death moment. Like, I had a feeling something was going to happen to her because, you know, you watch enough of these movies. You always know when they go back to danger. Something bad happens. I thought maybe kidnapped. I thought, like I said, that the, the car would drive off and end up opening fire on the truck or whatever, and she'd get a stray bullet. I did not see her just getting blatantly shot with so callous of a, of a shot. Yeah. I mean, I thought maybe he would turn and tell her to go fuck off or scare her off or something like that. You know what I mean? I did not see her just getting brutally murdered. And so, in any other movie, the gang would have kidnapped the little girl, and her dad would have made it to the police station. And there'd be a trade-off. Mm -hmm. In any other film, that's what would have happened. But mm -hmm. that's been done. John Carpenter is trying to make an impression. And <laughs> fucking, what an impression. Well, yeah, the thing is, you have to find a way for these guys to attack the, the precinct. So you've already got the fact that the cops have already murdered some people. And they're going to make some kind of blood oath to kill these, you know, kill cops. And this is the group that's going around with it. And then shooting the girl causes the father to go after them. And causes them to, he ends up killing the guy who actually shot his daughter. Yeah. And then they're chasing him and he runs to the police station, which is, you know, I mean, so we have to have our reason to get there. But what, a, I mean, again, it's a, Tarantino has has learned of some ballsy yeah. moves in other films too. But uh, this was definitely one of those moments where you go, wow, okay, this is where some of these, these things that we see reoccurring in films. Yeah. This is how you know this ball, this movie has balls. Because yeah. it's just, well, a, you know what? A, yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that's what I mean really is that. You know, like I say, there'd be there'd be the trade off that like that's that would be in any other movie, but John Carpenter's like he's the he's the new blood. Do you know what I mean? He's he's come along. He wants yeah. to do things differently. We've all we've seen that shit a million times. And that little girl getting shot must have. I mean, 
to be a fly on the wall of any cinema back then, that must have freaked people's shit right out. Yeah. That was, and like, yeah, like you say. And that is the kind of... Um, and John didn't do the old Tarantino thing where sometimes the, the death, that kind of a death is off screen. No, he We watched you, her get shot a, right in the fucking chest. That's a meat chest. and potatoes shot. I mean, but that must have left a massive impression on, like you say, on someone like Tarantino. Like, that's like a massive that impression of me and I'm 47. Yeah, yeah like that reaction. <laughs> That's what he was, you know, all about. Agreed. I think this is definitely one of those things that I'm thinking back on Carpenter's films. I can't remember a more shocking moment because anything else that happens always with some villains or some bad guys. You know what I mean? Like, that's a shocking But that's what I mean. Moment. That's the Sam Raimi tree rape sequence. That's the same thing. That's yes. Like, yeah, Sam yeah. Raimi, John Carpenter, they may not do that shit now, but they knew back then. They, they were young punks, you know? They wanted to <laughs> freak people out. And I'm going to freak people out by showing them some stuff they've never seen before. And I'm going yeah. all out because this might be the only film I ever get to make. Yeah. So they, they went all yeah. out. And, and there's, you know, Tarantino, when he made Reservoir Dogs, that air sequence before it even came out, you know, the air cutting sequence before that even came mm-hmm. out, he knew that was a big deal because they were trying yep. to get him to cut it out. So he knew he was onto something. Yep. They showed their hand, didn't they? You know, the producers. <laughs> yeah. You know, they, they showed their hand before. They perhaps should have, you know, because he knew uh, he was like, right, they want me to cut this out. I'm on or something. Yep. That's that's like the equivalent of a fucking test screener, you know, without having to have one. So, yeah, that kid getting shot is insane, really. Just a crazy moment. And then, you know, even when they're, you know, when the bus finally shows up and they're trying to leave, whatever, and they get shot, it's like they really, for the time... For 76, like they, he Carpenter, like I said, he didn't pull any punches. There are dudes getting lit the fuck up in that movie, and I, I loved it, how it was starting. But I did learn something. As we learn at all movies, if you are going to break in someplace, window blinds are a real motherfucker and fuck up your ability to sneak in. Because when they're trying to come in, I loved it. They're trying to come through those blinds, and they're getting fucking eviscerated. Just like duck hunt. Uh, can I, Bam! Can I just say, can I, can I just say, just as a just a pure bit of cinema that I just love is the moment when Austin Stoker throws... Yeah. I can't think of his name. I know. I can't think of his name in the film. Right, but when he throws the... Sh- because it's, it's Lieutenant something. Yeah, when he throws that shotgun to Napoleon Wilson and he starts blowing people through, fucking blowing people away through the fucking windows, that's just <laughs> ecstasy. That's pure cinema. Is. That is what movies are all about. That moment when he just... Let's loose and start blasting these fucking gangbangers away through these windows. Was did you, do you know what Ethan that Bishop. gives that Ethan? Of course, it's Bishop. Ethan Bish- of Bishop. Of course, it is. There you go. Oh, now you said I feel ridiculous. Yeah. But I know. But just that um that that bit when Napoleon Wilson blowing them away. That's that just gets my that just makes the hairs on my arm stand up every time I see it. And that's what I love. That's why movies, you know, that's the great thing is that something you've seen a million times can still give you that same feeling, you know, and that's a, it's a cheap film. Now, I hadn't seen movies prior that did that, but just from seeing that moment, and like you're talking about, when that moment happens, that is a 1980s moment that starts, right? So it's that throwing the weapon to someone else to kill someone. It becomes like a 1980s action trope yes. at any moment. So you're like, toss him the gun. You know, it's like that toss the gun at the last second. Yeah. They yeah. start shooting people. Like It becomes that trope. And it, I don't know that it starts here. It definitely made me recognize it in that moment when he's just throws in the shotgun. But I just remember watching going, when are these motherfuckers going to stop trying to come to these blinds? Like, they're getting fucking eviscerated. I mean, yeah, that, that, that's, like you say, that is such a familiar thing. But that's since Assault and Precinct 13. Yeah. I can't think of many films 
before it. I think like that that kind of allude in, in Rio in Rio Bravo when um, John Wayne gives a gun to Dean Martin, you get that same vibe that but that's different because he's an alcoholic and he's not <laughs> trusted for that reason. You know, Dean, Dean Martin's character isn't trusted for that reason, but he does prove himself. So that's not the same as the distrust of giving a criminal a gun. And that's what this is all about, is you're not getting a gun, so I don't fucking trust you. That's why Napoleon Wilson isn't getting a gun. But then they're so outmanned at that point, where he's like, it's every man for himself. That's when he, you know, Bishop at that point realises it's every man for himself here. I'm out, man. I'm out, man. I'm out, gun. I need some fucking help. And he throws him that shotgun, and that's the best decision he could have made. Because <laughs> from that moment, from that moment, it's on, isn't it? You know, you know, I've got a partner here. We could get through this. And before that, <laughs> before that, he was quaking in his boots, wasn't he? Yeah. You know, we don't know what to do. <laughs> Who are these people? What's going on? What What's that sound? Where are these coming from? And you know, and, and when they look out over the street. There's gradually just more of these gangbangers showing yeah. up. It's fucking scary as fuck. The only thing that I found was weird. <laughs> this moment made no sense. And maybe it was just they they just edited this the way they're going to edit. But there's a moment when they're going to they, they start their assault and they're pushing the cars forward from the parking lot. Right. Right. Yeah. They're pushing them forward. And I'm assuming they're using them as shields. And then there's a moment after the whole big thing and they're blowing people away with the shotguns and stuff. And there's it's quiet and they look outside. And all of a sudden, it took these guys that felt like 15 minutes to try to push those cars towards the building. There's one moment, and again, I know it's an editing choice. I know that they only shot a certain amount of this thing. So the person who edited it had to take what they would give him. But there's a moment they, sh- they show it and the cars are, they're pushed them out of the opening of the, the parking lot from across the street. And then... We've got some shootout going on, and probably five minutes later in the film, we see that them still pushing out, and they've only managed to move like five feet ahead, right? Like it's, you know I what? know that it's an editing choice. That's not and then that all weird. Of a sudden, just... Hold on, when the, when the shooting ends, hold on, when the shooting ends, all of a sudden, those vehicles are back in the exact spot they came from, and I'm thinking, do you have any idea how hard, I mean, pushing a car forward is hard to steer, but putting it backwards and putting it right in the exact spot that they pushed it forward from is near impossible. It was just one. Look at again. It's a movie. Doesn't take me out of it. But I, I did chuckle when I saw that. I was like, no fucking way. Do you know what that, that is? They moved those vehicles forward and they put them in the exact spot. I was like, well, there's no film, fucking well, way that I, happened. I put it down that that film was edited by John Carpenter. He's learning on the job. That's what that is. And it is what, what it is. Well, because there's a mention that they look out oh, yeah. the window and oh, they put yeah, it no, back. Absolutely. I was watching. But you I know, I was watching a very highly budgeted TV show last night and I saw exactly the same fucking thing. So <laughs> you know, but I. I will I will give John Carpenter a pass on that because he edited it. He he shot the stuff, so that's his own fault if he didn't have enough material shot. But he's Footage, all, yeah. but he is also learning on the job, and he's learning what an awesome <laughs> and he's probably learning how awesome is he is at shooting suspense. And he was just in love with what he was doing. So I'll give him a pass. I agree. I just I, know I was exactly just what, so I noticed exactly it was funny. What you're talking about. I do know exactly what you're talking about. And I think it's because, you know, we're not in 1976 anymore. Exactly. Right? So no, we're so no. many years down the road. All of a sudden, you look back and you go, I'm just going in the mind. I'm going, these this gang is the best gang ever. I mean, they can't get through a window, but when it comes to moving a vehicle and then making it not look like a crime scene, these guys are going to throw CSI oh, off. Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? No, like, I don't like, know what to think. I hear you. And the other thing, again, this is 1976, and so much has changed since then. 
But I didn't realize how, like, when they just had stunt drivers, they didn't even try to make them look like the actual characters. Like, nowadays they are. There's a moment that they're driving, and I think it's the cops. The guys are playing the two cops who drive around for no reason. But they show them, like, peeling off or driving. And when they don't do rear projection, they basically put the vehicle on a flatbed. That's low to the ground, and they pull it, and the cameras attach to that flatbed, and they, you know, they do the the mimicking of driving and, and go through the motions. But when they go to the real driving, they have stunt drivers do it. And there was one moment where, like, I think the main guy's got like a red hair and red mustache, and all of a sudden the stunt driver's got like this dark hair. I just see him for like two seconds. I'm like, Scott, this is 1976. Don't make too much of it. But it just made me chuckle. It's one of those moments where, like, it doesn't take me out of the film because I know it's happening. I know why it's happening. But it's one of those funny moments you look back and go, man, we really have come a long way in the almost. 20, 45, 50 years since that movie well, was, was made. <laughs> if, I, if I may point out to everybody. Please do. Go back and watch Face Off. And you tell me. Oh, God, yes. You <laughs> tell me when Nicolas Cage and John Travolta go flying through the air off of that um, speedboat. And no, neither stuntman looks anything like them guys. That is possibly <laughs> one of the worst things I've ever seen in a movie that bit in face off and that stops me from even liking that movie quite frankly that is so, <laughs> such disrespect for your audience man i'll give john carpenter a pass because he made his film on about 50 fucking bucks you got john woo making a film this day you know and everyone t- talks about a great face face of this and i'm like them two stuntmen look nothing like travolta and nicholas Cage, <laughs> and i'm supposed to just let that go but anyway, it happens. It does happen. It still happens now. Well, I think you missed the point of that film, though. It was face off, so there was another face came off. Oh, and Jesus just... Christ. In midair. I didn't see that. It's, hey, midair. I mean, we, we don't have to get into face Because you know what? Maybe Petros is listening, or maybe he just tells me he listens. Excuse me, sir. You dropped this name. He's already mad about certain things I've said about his movies he's like, so he'll be sending me a nice little message right now about how you're shitting on Face Off. Maybe he'll I'll be on the Face Off special. I'll shit on Face Off all day long. John Wu should have stayed in fucking Hong Kong. I think we've had that discussion. Yes, we have. Actually, we had that discussion because he did Mission Impossible 2. We had that there discussion on the Cheeky Bastards. Yeah. For further information, listen to the Cheeky Bastards podcast available from wherever you get your podcast. Shameless plug. Now, I will say this before we get into the actual influences I saw for this film. Carpenter is a master of single location films. Now, not all of his films are in single locations, but this and The Thing, obviously they also start other places, but he has an ability to make one place. And again, I would say this is a thing that obviously Tarantino learned and loved, is the ability to put you in one location and then just tense the fuck out of you, make you just get anxiety through the roof because... You can't go anywhere. And as we've talked about, I think the interesting thing about this film is Assault on Precinct 13 is Carpenter's commentary on the amazing original zombie film, Night of the Living Dead. Yeah. And then we move ahead, and the movie we're talking about from Dust on Dawn is both a conversation by both these gentlemen, Tarantino and Rodriguez, their kind of commentary on, especially the second half of the film, Assault on Precinct 13. Yeah. And also possibly Night of the Living Dead because they have such lineage ties together from the two films yeah which is uh, amazing yeah no i agree and now it's time to present the evidence now the very first influence i noticed and obviously it is i mean it slaps you in the face it's very obvious number one is that the main characters are all trapped inside a building unable to escape while violent people are trying to get inside to kill them that is just the way it is that is just what this film clearly is referencing now whether it's also 
you know, taking a, a tie-in of also the movie we just talked about, which would be Night of the Living Dead. But clearly, one of the influences because of that is this. And I also think it's more so leans to this because more people are fighting where really Night of the Living Dead, our main character is the one trying to keep everyone alive while shooting people, while shooting the zombies. Where in this film, we have our main characters being, well, for, the, for some part, Wells, played by Rocky's boxing coach. We've got Mr. Bishop, the lieutenant. And then you've got the slick-talking Napoleon Wilson, who, when he's not fucking up people with shotguns, would just like a cigarette and maybe a relationship to fucking last longer than two minutes. So, <laughs> <laughs> your feeling on that influence that I saw for this film from this film. And by that film, I mean From Dust Till Dawn influenced by these moments from the assault on Precinct 13. See, with From Dust Till Dawn, not only are they trying to stop, you know, not only are they trying to stop the vampires from getting in, the added suspense of the ticket, you know, the the passing of time, where they've got to, they've basically got to make it through the night. Yeah. They need the sunlight. Yeah. Well, they end up having to use the sunlight as a weapon, which is a trope yep. used in a million bad Which we're, well, I'm going to get into as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, but no, I think the assault on Precinct 13 from dusk till dawn thing, you know, that is the definite thing, that, that comparison is definitely there, as is, I mean, you know, with... Um, with neither living dead, of course, you've got the black lead actor. Yep. But whereas, obviously, in the point of neither living dead, of course, I mean, he's alone, isn't he? He's yep. he's trying to be the voice of reason, although he ends up getting everyone killed. But that's also a very. I mean, most people, would, if you know whether people would like to uh, believe this or not, Night of the Living Dead is really a commentary by Romero about police brutality and how they people police act towards black people way back when. It's definitely there. That subtext, mm-hmm. that subtext, that's what subtext, I mean, that's what subtext is. <laughs> you know, it is, it's just there. It's it, Like you say, police brutality, racism, all this stuff. That's what makes films interesting and rewatchable. Um, you know, and like you say, this is great because, you know, Rio Bravo influenced possibly Night of the Living Dead, which influ- and both influenced Assault and Precinct 13, which influenced <laughs> Dust Till Dawn. All masterpieces of their type, you know. We'll get into the dynamics of the relationships with the next film, probably. Yep. But you still got Seth. I mean, you you you're not going to get a better good guy than Ethan Bishop, right? From Assault. Yep. And you're not going to get a better good guy than Harvey Keitel's character, who's a fucking priest. Yep. So you know, Ethan Bishop is Harvey Keitel's, and Napoleon Wilson is Seth Gakko. Seth Gakko, yeah. which is interesting because that leads me to my second influence I saw. Number two. The main characters from both these films are split between good and criminals. Yeah. There are good guys and there are criminals, and they have to work together even if they don't want to in order to stay alive. Exactly like you said. Uh, Bishop is Harvey Keitel's character, and they just flip it instead yeah. of... Harvey Keitel's yeah. character being the one in charge, it's actually Seth Gecko. So it's as if Napoleon was the one in yeah, charge. And but also to, they kind of flip yeah, it. and also to show what a good writer Tarantino is, the oldest and best trick of the book is you make your bad guys so bad. And when I say bad guys in this case, I'm not talking about Seth Gecko. I'm talking about bloodthirsty vampires. Yep. Okay? You make your bad guys so bad, it doesn't matter how badly behaved your good guys are. <laughs> yep. You know? 
Yeah. You, know, you can make your good guys do terrible things if you're bad guys. Like in Inglorious Bastards. Yeah. Like you're scalping people, but because they're the Nazis, you're like, yeah, yeah that sounds them. about right. Yeah, yeah exactly. Feels, uh, fuck those yeah, motherfuckers. Exactly. exactly. So yeah. you make your bad guys so bad so that your good guys can pretty much have free reign to be as bad as they want. Because ultimately, yeah. however bad yeah. they get, they're still the good guys. So. Yeah. He's smart enough to, like, just like, um, well, I'll go with that to another day. I was going to say, like, someone that dragged across concrete where Mel Gibson and Vince Vaughn are pretty bad cops, but the bad guys they're against are fucking beyond psychotic. <laughs> yeah. So that just allows yeah. <laughs> so much depth to your good guys. So, yeah, the fact that Seth Gek, I mean, Richie Gek, Richie Gek goes a sex pervert. You know, <laughs> Seth is a fucking murderer. You know. But, again... It's how in that in this movie where when when Richie dies, you don't feel so bad because of who he really is, but you still are rooting for Seth because Seth has like we've always said he has the code. Yeah, he has a code. Yeah, you know and he's you, allowed and, Richie to get he, away with he, things he shouldn't. Yeah, and he's allowed, but he has and he's a code. allowed to be upset because it's his brother, and no matter how bad he was, you know you you feel that sympathy. Yep. You don't feel the sympathy for Richie. You do feel the sympathy for Seth because ultimately that is his brother, or it was his brother. See, this is the stuff that I don't personally think Robert Rodriguez could have written himself. No. Tarantino is... But that's okay. No, it's fine. You know, yeah. I, I and the two, just, But the two of them no, together I mean, work yeah, I brilliantly. Just see, I just see Robert Rodriguez as a director more than I do a writer. I would agree. Um, whereas Tarantino's got the full package. You know, he can, do, yep. he can do both things equally with equal aplomb. So that's the great thing about his good guys are so bad. <laughs> so that's just fun, isn't it? And it's interesting. I think another one is, as we're talking about this, number three, the DNA of Seth Gecko's character. Some of it is Napoleon Wilson from this film. There's definitely the, the sarcasm, the the guy who you kind of root for bad guy, but also I think he's also part of the character we'll get into in our, our next film, but there's definitely some DNA here of the quick quibs, the bad guy who's kind of attractive, you know, he's the, he's the dangerous guy, yeah, you know. Yeah. Seth Gecko is a Napoleon Wilson well, type, for 100 percent sure. The heart yeah, exactly. The movie. Not just because he's George Clooney, but he wasn't George Clooney then. He wasn't the George Clooney. No, he we, wasn't. I mean, yeah, he was the doctor on TV, but yeah, but but he yeah, but he's a doctor on TV, and it was a whole different kind of heartthrob then. You know, this is this is a bad boy. He became a bad boy in this film. He wasn't a bad boy. I mean, he was kind of like the you know may, maybe a little bit of the bad boy. You know, doesn't play by the rules. Well, he, he, he type was of cast, a doctor, he was definitely but, cast against type, though. I mean, you know, this is him breaking out and trying agreed. to prove himself. Is you know the three dimensional. You know, he, he's not just always flat on his eyelids and being Mr. Sensitive Doctor. He's, been, <laughs> he's got a tattoo of a fucking snake up his neck. He's punched, uh, you know, he's just a complete... Yeah. I mean, I must say, one of my best, one of my favourite lines or one of my favourite little bits of any movie is the... Um, when they knock on Harvey Keitel's door and he opens it and he says, what's this? <laughs> Seth, Seth Getgo, it's called a punch. That's one of the, my favorite bits of any film ever. That's, I always, I always, uh, I always laugh out loud when that happens. Well, one of my favorites leads to the fourth and final one that I could see that was a direct tie to this film. Number four, and that is the use of an explosion to end the siege. Now, in our film Assault on Precinct Thirteen, there has to be a acetylene tank, and we've got some flares, and it, ha it, it has a nineteen. Like I feel like the eighties stole from some of this movie a little God. bit. Like it's the convenient ending, and of course he doesn't hit it on the first shot. It's the third shot, of the last course. one. But the explosion 
obliterates all attackers. Yes. Well, in this one, it's the door opening up in light and just obliterates all the fucking <laughs> no, vampires. But it has my favorite Seth Gecko moment. And he's like, what were they, psychos? And he goes, I don't care how crazy they are, but psychos do not explode when exposed to sunlight. It's one of my favorite moments, how pissed off he is after being trapped in there. But definitely there was the use of explosions. And now obviously give Rodriguez and Tarantino credit for... I mean, literally, if you've seen the behind the scenes of this film, they shoot that scene, one of the first shots, and they have to go somewhere else to finish the film because they have to rebuild the front because they actually set the fucking front yeah, of the building right, yeah. on fire. Yeah, I remember. And so they had to film the other stuff and then come back and finish it out because they set the front of the building on fire. But yes, definitely uh, leaned into the explosion to end a siege, which is different for both films than what happens, obviously, in our film that they're both kind of also kindred spirits to, which is Nightmare of the Living Dead. And that, or Night of the Living Dead. And that is where, you know, eventually the police show up and they're able to help, you know, shoot and help, you know, defend the house against the zombies. And then unfortunately our, our main character there gets killed by them. Then this one, they in both of them, they use explosions to, you know, because they're out. And that's the other thing is they're both out of weapons. They, there's nothing left. They're pretty much, that's it. They're both all ready to die and they have a last ditch effort and... Boom. Explosions. People die. They survive. Happy ending in both films. Well, for some. Not so much for our poor man, Napoleon. But Seth. Seth gets to, to ride off into the sunset and die another horrible death probably later yeah, on. But we don't know. Life. Maybe, maybe um, Napoleon Wilson got some kind of reprieve. No. no, you horrible man. Maybe maybe they commuted some of his time off his sentence for helping. Oh, maybe. They had you know, to. Never they know. can't not. Man, come on. There's got to be some faith in the justice system. <laughs> <laughs> uh, did you see any inspirations that I have No, overlooked? I mean, really, it all, it all, to me, obviously, the influence of Assault on Precinct 13, to me, does start when they're in the Titty Twister. Before that... Oh, 100%. Yes, I mean, you 100%. know what? To be, I will say this as well. I, I mean, I, I, I don't want to sound like I'm putting Rodriguez down when I've said the things I'm saying. He's a great director. I just don't think he's much of a writer. But what I will say is before they get to the titty twister and you've got the thing with the hostage and the bit at the beginning, he shoots the shit out of that stuff. You would not know that it's not him. You would say, I think Tarantino directed the first half of the film and Rodriguez the second half, correct? I would I mean if you looked you at could, it. You could there's an argument you, you, you could, could definitely you could you could fool somebody and say, hey Tarantino directs his first half. Yeah you could make that assumption. Um but I think I think I all I'm saying is Rodriguez does an admiral job in that first half. And then when they get to the tit when he gets to the titty twister he ups his game even more. Mm -hmm. So not. So put it this way. So, all right. So I'll I'll extend that uh, that old branch. I'll say I'll say he is aping Tarantino style in that first half. Say say we'll say that right. If, if he's just completely riffing on Tarantino in that first half. Second half is when he uh, rolls his sleeves up and says, "Now it's my turn." He is a hell of a horror. Oh, actor. He, he really no, that's is. What I'm gonna, that's what I was going to say. He rolls his sleeves up in that second half and he says, "Now it's my turn." And he just goes, well, he just goes for it, doesn't he? He just goes, yeah. goes ballistic. And you can see the difference between the two gentlemen, where they get more of their influences exactly, from. You know, yeah. he's definitely yeah. more of a B-movie horror fan than Tarantino yeah. is. And you can see it. That's what happens in uh, well, no their grindhouse hey, look, films. There's no mistake that their car in the beginning is blatantly Mad Max's car. 
as well. Yeah. yeah. So there's all yeah. kinds of stuff going on there. Yeah. But this, it's the meeting of two minds, isn't it? It's like these two guys yeah. who between them know everything about cinema, you know, and they're influenced. They wear their hearts on their sleeve. They wear their influences on their sleeve. And they just went for it. And between the two of them, they just came up with possibly, dare I say, one of the last great horror movies. Ooh, wow. That is some strong praise well, from Mr. Steve Smith. not only Steve strong Smith. praise, you know, as a horror fan. And I'm not, and look, when I say horror fan, I don't just love horror movies. You've got to be fucking great, you know. And this is a great film, you know. And I'm not seeing, and I'm not seeing that just lately, all this CGI bullshit. And now it's time to read the verdict. So in your opinion, did Tarantino and Rodriguez, were they inspired by this film or did they rip it off? I would say they were inspired. They're inspired by one of the best directors to ever come out of Hollywood who made, you know, a genuine cult classic with his first movie. And, you know, this is, yeah, this is influence because it's not just about, you know, as you pointed out, you know, that the, the explosion at the end, the good guy having to team up with the bad guy, you know. Yeah, all this stuff is in Assault on Precinct 13, but even John Carpenter didn't invent that, No, you know. And it's different, and it's told yeah, differently. Yeah, and knowing their age and what films they watched coming up, this is influence. This is influence. This isn't... Because they don't need to rip anything off, you know. They're making a horror movie. They can do what they want. They've got the endless resources, to be quite honest with you at that point, haven't they? <laughs> yeah. yeah so gotcha. they could do what they want, you know. Um, and I think, you know, and, and you've got, yeah, and you've also got Robert Rodriguez's own kind of Mexican heritage yeah. with vampire folklore and all that, you know, with the giant rat thing and that built on this huge fucking God knows what that was, these ruins. Mayan temple. These, yeah, yeah, these ruins and everything. So, you know, I'm, I definitely, I would de definitely not say they're ripping off John Carpenter. I'm saying that they were influenced by one of the best directors of all time. I concur, sir. I concur. In the case of Assault on Precinct 13, we find the defendant not guilty of the crime of being a talentless hack who rips other people's movies off. That leads us to our second film of the evening. It's time to call our second witness. Our second witness is the 1955 crime noir film, The Desperate Hours, written by Joseph Hayes and Jane Drattler and directed by William Wyler. Three escaped convicts terrorize a suburban household as they take them hostage while they hide out there until midnight when an accomplice plans to deliver a large sum of money. Starring Humphrey Bogart, Friedrich March, Arthur Kennedy, Martha Scott, Dewey Martin, and Gig Young, made on a budget of $2.3 million and grossing $2.5 million at the box office, with a 7.5 IMDb rating and an 88 critics and 79 audience rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Now taking the witness stand, The Desperate Hours. Now, I don't know if you knew this, this film was an award-winning Broadway play prior to it being released. I did not. I could see that. No, I yeah. didn't know that. But it's, it's a very stagey kind of movie. You could see how that could, you yep. could see how that would work on the stage. Now, I have never, I'd never seen this film before. And I got to say, one of the things I'm really enjoying about season two is it is giving me a chance to watch films that I probably never would have watched before, that I never had even heard of. And it's like a bit of a cinema speculation type of thing where 
I'm now checking out these influences. Now, I'll be honest, there are influences, there's hundreds of influences in some of these films. Pulp Fiction alone has so many, it would take me almost an entire season to go through them all, you know, to, to cross-reference them. So I try to find the ones that not only have some very, you know, specific references that people know about, but also some films that we also have heard of. Because, you know, I don't want this just to be some dry, old, all the French new wave stuff that he likes, this and that. So I also am trying to look for ones that are a good mixture. And so we can also then see what these gentlemen were watching, what movies they saw that then they saw a moment in them and said, I like that. I want to use that. Or that's what they were thinking about when writing and doing it. Now, I'm assuming this is also the first time you've seen this film. I watched this film for the first time last night. Um, I had seen the remake, though, with... Mickey Rourke. I have not seen the remake with Mickey Rourke. Well, see, this concerned me because I remember the Mickey Rourke one being one of the most boring films I'd ever seen. It's got, oh, yeah, okay, it's got Anthony Hopkins, I believe. It's Anthony Hopkins and Mickey Rourke. Yeah, I think so. He might be. Yeah. I just thought that was a really boring film. And I'm a huge Mickey Rourke fan. And he was, a, he was kind of at the top of his game at that point. So I found it to be pretty disappointing. And I'd never, but I'd never seen the original until last night. What's your initial uh, take on it, considering it's from 1955? I would like to put that out. This is from 1955, so there's a lot of... I mean, movie making has changed a lot, but also you can see where the bones of movie making come from in these older films. I'm going to be kind. I didn't love it. Okay. It was too long. It's two hours long. It was. I was surprised at how long it was for a film from that era. But it's directed by the guy who made Ben-Hur, so... (laughs) Um, I just found... right. It's a film rescued by its lead, and that lead being Humphrey Bogart. Humphrey Bogart was one of the things I want to talk about. I have only seen two other films of his. Now, when I went to film school, we had to watch Casablanca. I'm not a huge fan of that movie. I could give two shits May about I Casablanca, say, and I don't mean to be May mean. May I just say, yeah. watch it again, with all, that, with all that shit behind you. You're right. One thing I've always said about Casablanca that I liked is it is where the name of one of my favorite films comes from, and that being The Usual Suspects. That's where the name of that film yes. was stolen Round from, up the is usual the suspect. end. I've also seen The Maltese Falcon, which was okay. Again, please watch it again. However, this film with Mr. Humphrey Bogart, and Humphrey playing the, the heavy, the bad guy in this film, yeah. this is his second to last film. He would die a little over, just a little under two years later, of oh, esophageal cancer. I looked it up after I watched yeah, no, it. No, I did not He is unfucking believable in this film. He is so good. It has made me want to go see more of his films, especially his crime films. Like, I know that, you know, everyone says, oh, you know, you hear about the old time actors and you think, okay, well, that's because it was an, of a certain time and, you know, it's the golden age of, of Hollywood. And, you know, they, Frank, my dear, I don't give it all that. You know, like, okay, it's a little over pomp and circumstance sometimes. And you're like, all right. But I cannot say the same thing about Humphrey Bogart. I thought he was spectacular. I love every time he's on screen, I was hooked. He was just brilliant. I thought he also helped bring out some of the acting and some of the other characters when they were in the scene with him. Right. Well, I think he, he carries that movie. Oh God, yes. Look, I mean 100%. I well, I like a lot of film noir and a lot of, you know, old Hollywood stuff. I mean a huge fan. Of Casablanca, I'm even I'm probably a bigger fan of the Maltese Falcon actually, but I'm no I'm not an authority on this stuff because a lot of the time this may show a lack of sophistication on my part. But sometimes I'm watching these sort of things and I'm like, this is just too old. I can't get into it. You know, they're filmed. I feel I, they're very much of their period. I get that. And as you've pointed out, you know, you've got to appreciate things in the context of their time, and that's all good. But sometimes. 
these stories and the pace of some of these things, I just I did find this film a bit of a slog. I found it a bit. Yep, it's a bit. It's a, a bit slow bit going for tough sure. To get through a bit, some of the characters' actions I found a bit infuriating too. But at the same time, uh, you know, there was enough there for me. It was compelling enough, but it was just too long. If they would have shaved half an hour off this movie, that would have been pace yeah. would have been so much better. You know, they'd have trimmed some of the fat off of it. But I would have just hoped they wouldn't, you know, uh, yeah. take any. of Bogart away from it because he is on fucking fire in this movie. In fact, in fact, I would go. This is like this is like a Humphrey Bogart I hadn't seen before. Yeah, I was quite amazed actually. Yeah, and he only makes one more film after this. Yeah, I mean, I like Humphrey Bogart. I've seen a lot of Humphrey Bogart movies, and he's all. I mean, there's another one you should check out called In a Lonely Place. Um, that's a that's you know Key Largo. There's a, there's a lot of great Bogart Bogarts. I've never seen him like this. And that did blow me away, actually. Do you think some of the pacing is it because we're used to cut to the chase type of films, well, where like it. this film, he allows it to like like this film, it doesn't rush to the ending, it yeah. drags it out, like it it, it keeps you guessing what's going to happen next, it keeps you in suspense. You know, you have an idea. This is the '50s, so you know that eventually the bad guys are going to lose. That that's this is before the dawn of the bad guys winning. Yeah, this is why I'm hesitant. That's why I'm hesitant because, as you pointed out. I don't want to criticize it too much because it, it's easy to look back on something and mm-hmm. look down your nose at it a bit or criticize it. But th- things were different then. Yes. And you've got to appreciate that. There's some great shit in it. And he's a fucking, he's great. There are some funny moments in it. If you look at it, the fucking paperboy moment is great. Yeah. It happens yeah. twice. Yeah. But that paperboy whistling and then zipping that paper off his front yeah. door. And he goes, I'm going to catch up with him one day. Just that whole old school, like, if he catches that paperboy, he's giving that paperboy an ass whooping, and no one's going to say anything about it. His parents will give him an ass whooping later. But I just love that, bam, that he whip against the fucking door. You know, there were just a couple of, you know, like, that. I found it weird that, um, I found it weird that the daughter gets to go out on the date with that guy, even though the whole... Well, I think some of that is because it's the mutual self-destruction. The assured mutual self-destruction. They want to keep appearances so she can go out, but they know she's not going to say anything to him because if he does and the cops show up, they're going to kill the younger brother and the mother and the father right then and there. Yeah, but the cops show up anyway. Well, look, it's the 1950s, so you know it's going to happen. Exactly, but I'm just saying that's a bit of a weak... But when it does happen, I just found that a little bit... I get it, but when it does happen, they have been narrowed down in their Numbers, yeah. True, true. No, again, I'm I'm just well, like when I was watching, I was like, oh, you could obviously I'm talking about trimming a film down, so oh, so yeah. I'm sort of like thinking, well, that needn't have happened. You could have done away with that whole sort of side, that not subplot exactly, but just. However, they probably, if you think about it, this is probably a trimmed down version of what the stage play was. That was probably three hours. Yeah, so fuck for the movie. Here's here's a few things you learned from the 1950s, folks. In this film, there are two children. I will tell you the age of one in a minute, but one is a young boy, seven or eight years old. He's, oh, a good decade or so younger than his older sister. So young Ralphie is a surprise baby. Young Ralphie is a maybe dad came home from the war and 
popped one in mom. She pulled the goalie. He got an open net shot, and he scored. And Ralph is definitely a surprise baby, as he is much younger than his sister, who now works. Now, she doesn't go to school because everyone knows in the 1950s, women do not need to learn anything. Get yourself into the workforce, ladies. Leave the thinking to the men. <laughs> the, good old, right? the good old days. <laughs> the good old days. <laughs> <laughs> The lack of respect women are given in the 50s films arts is staggering. Holy shit. Literally, every so far, I've watched about three or four 1950s films. And in every one of them, women have no purpose other than to support men and be there for them. They don't know what to do when the men aren't around unless they're cleaning. They, they're besides themselves. They can't figure out what to do. And if a woman gets out of line, nothing a good slap or two... <laughs> Can't fucking put back in order. So these are just some interesting things I saw. Also, speaking of Ralph, Ralphie's got fucking balls. Next to Bogart's character, Ralphie's my favorite character. That little kid has got a fucking sack on him. First off, he's going after his dad for not being man enough. He basically thinks his dad's a fucking sack of weak nuts because he doesn't want to kiss him in the beginning of the movie. He wants to shake his hand. He wants him to be seen as an equal man. He thinks his dad's weak. He's scared. He's going to go take care of all this stuff. He's waiting for his dad to man the fuck up, and eventually he does. But for the most part, Ralphie's got balls. Ralphie's the one, uh, that big fucking guy, big, big muscle-bound dude, wants to get that plane. He takes the plane and he smashes fucking it. smashes it. And then I love that. I love that in these movies they find like re- wrestlers, professional wrestlers, because the guy fucking picks him up and soup was gonna yeah, soup. That's what I was gonna He's got him in a soup. <laughs> that's what I, was I, was like, Holy shit. I was like, Jesus. And that's no stunt. So and that's no stunt kid either, is it? No. Yeah, this kid's got a suplex on the couch. Oh, so good, uh, so good. But Ralphie's got fucking sack on him. I loved Ralphie. I was like, God damn, this kid. You know, you're sitting there waiting for his dad to do something. His dad doesn't do a goddamn thing for the most part. Like, dude. Do something. The kid's got sand. Oh, big time. The other thing, his sister, when we first see her, she's going to work with dad. Dad drops her off wherever she's working. Now, admittedly, the actress looks like she's in her early to mid-20s, would you say? It's hard to decide from the 50s. But she looks early early 20s. Well, she's 19 in this film. That's who she plays. Now, she's dating a lawyer named Chuck. Never, Chuck never looks date, like he's in his date, fucking 40s. Never date, guy, never date a guy called Chuck, ever, if I can offer advice to anyone. Chuck is in his late 30s, early 40s. Chuck's almost as old as her father, at least the actor playing him. Apparently, back, back in the good old 50s, not only was it okay to smack some women around and suplex a child, it was also okay... As long as they broke 18, I mean, people are getting all upset about Leonardo DiCaprio and his younger taste. Well, I got to say, folks, it's been in a Hollywood thing for a very, very long time. I don't think that's, don't think that's just relegated to Hollywood, though. No, but I'm just saying, it's been, it, but it's been fine. It's been, you know, when you go to the movies and that's, your, that's where you, you learn most of your stuff, a lot of people, it's been in the movies for a very Long time. And you know what? We can't say it hasn't been in a Tarantino film because the bride and Bill have a significant, significant age gap between them. I'm just saying, I was like, oh, dad's okay with this old man snuggling up to his daughter. I think he's probably older than he's 
the character he's playing. I would agree, but still, that dude looked like he was like a hundred years that old. That doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. I know he's not playing a sixty-year-old guy. He's playing a thirty-year-old guy. I get it, but you know, maybe we find a thirty-year-old actor. <laughs> I don't care. There's not, a, there's not enough makeup matter. or time to do the movie. That doesn't matter. <laughs> That's, that's it not, does. No, it doesn't. There's no one who's there was no one real, even back you're then. You're being a real prissy no. fucking bitch about all this. No man. one back then in that era. I don't care who they are. Saw him and thought he's got to be 22, 23. No way. Yeah, They're you're all like that in the gutter because back then they were just hey. watching a movie. You're being all up your own ass about it. They were not just watching movies. They they went out all night long and we never knew where they went. We never saw them. <laughs> they kept coming back. Well, I'm just saying. And he and when he picked her up in his sports car. With the top down, even at night, he had the, he had that little whatever was armrest that he put down. But when she was getting in the car, he put it up. I don't what what was that about? That's so she got closer. I'm not saying anything, so I'm going to get cancelled. <laughs> I see where this is going. You're trying to fucking this is this is entrapment. This is entrapment. I am just explaining to my listeners what I saw in the film and what they will see if they decide to watch this as well. Don't be shocked by what you're about to see. I'm just letting you know now. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God. One funny thing, and again, this is 1955, but it is strange as you watch movies, and depending on what kind of service you get them on, and if they got a 4K, this or that, you know, again, you're, you're always going to notice the special effects of the time that you didn't notice as much when you were watching the film. I saw this when I recently just watched Edward Scissorhands. When you watch Edward Scissorhands as they drive into the cul-de-sac of this, you know, very pastel-colored town, and you see the mountain and hill that... Edward and the old man live on, it is so noticeable that it is a painting. It's like a matte painting. You're like, oh, now I see it. The rear projection in this, and it happens when they have the car, when um, Bogart's car is pulling into the driveway of the family for reasons. Apparently, you know what it probably is? is The size of the cameras was so big, there was no way to put a camera and a crew in it. So they just had a a crew with the camera outside drive up, and then they just used it as rear projection. But it was extremely noticeable. That being said... This film, for as long as it is, does have an amazing performance from Humphrey Bogart. Has a pretty decent story. It's a pretty good, I mean, decent story for the time it's in. But do you know what the moral of this story is? Don't leave your fucking bike in the yard. The whole reason Humphrey Bogart and his crew chose that house is because little fucking Ralphie left his bike in the yard by the fucking tree, and they thought must be a family. The best way to hide out is in a family home because it gives them more collateral to have. If Ralphie had put his fucking bike away, like he probably was told a hundred times, the little fucking prick, they never would have showed up at the house. None of the events would have happened. So at the end of the day, what this movie is about, is you need to put your fucking bike away. Do not leave it out in the yard. Or, alternatively, if you're anything like me, don't have any fucking kids, all right? That too. Or, (laughs) learn a pullout game. Just because there's no goalie in net does not mean you need to take a shot on Uh, goal. It's all I'm saying, kids. It's all I'm saying. If they also, look at Ralphie. Ralphie's the problem. If Papa doesn't, uh, he, you know, he... He goes tits up on her, and uh, we don't have Ralphie. I fucking hate kids. You know what? Put it this way. Ralphie, what, he was six, seven? They couldn't have been that attached to him. Let him yeah. die. Well, how about this? Ralphie wasn't that attached to the dad. Ralphie is actually more man than the father that was most of the film. Dad, you're a so. fucking pussy. <laughs> Basically. You know, pretty much says, Dad, you're a fucking pussy. I could t- for nineteen fifty five. I can yeah. take these guys out. Yeah, and then ba- the rest it's of the what he said. fucking through the window. <laughs> well, he realizes that the someone is fucked with his plane. He comes down like he's like so incensed. He doesn't care. There's guns. He's like, 
basically, if this was shot now, I'd be like, which one of you fucking pricks <laughs> fucked with my plane? I'm going to shove this plane up <laughs> your ass, basically. Gone what is that? Hey, this plane? You yeah. want this plane? Yeah. This plane over yeah, exactly. here? Yeah. And then the big guy's like, give me that DC-10. It was just weird that he named what kind of plane yeah, it was. And then he's like, that. and he's almost like, oh, is this the fucking plane you want? And he fucking breaks it on the table. Like, go fuck yourself. <laughs> hey, you if Joe Pesci had <laughs> played him, go hey, oh, fuck yourself <laughs> over there. Hey, man, hey, thought you go hey, fuck your mother. you see this plane? You see this fucking plane? So fuck yourself. Ralphie's, Ralphie's the, just watch it for Ralphie and Humphrey Bogart. If you've never seen Humphrey Bogart and you, all you've ever heard is like, oh, yeah, he's this great famous actor. I can't subscribe to every film he's ever been in, but I can tell you this. From this film alone, it is worth the watch just to see the acting chops that this gentleman had. He goes all Holy out. He's not cheering shit. the scenery either. He's going for no. this. Is real, yes. The real deal. You start to think, God, maybe this, maybe Humphrey Bogart really is a criminal. You know yeah, what I mean? No, like, maybe Humphrey is a real criminal. And the kid's scared of him as well. Little Ralphie. Ralphie is scared, scared of, him. of him. A bit, though. A bit. Not not as much. You no, know, he, he, I'm he, telling he, you. He does get he does get married. A little he bit. He does get mouthy with him at first, but, but throughout, throughout the film, he does gradually get more scared of the guy, as he fucking should. But the guy also has a lot of respect for Ralphie. He has more respect for Ralphie than he does for the father and the rest of the family. As he should as well. Like yeah. Yeah. Of, Ralphie's bunch though. of wet blankets. And then Ralphie boy. Yeah, you want this. Not to give it away. I'm a little upset that no one in the family got, got whacked. So I'm just saying. I'm, I'm a little upset that no one in the actual family got whacked. Well... They did rape his wife, though, didn't they? Oh, no, sorry. Sorry, no. Was... no, they don't. Different film. That's Maybe that's the version you saw with Mickey Rourke, but no one in the 50s gets raped. If anyone's having sex, it's that whore Cindy who's 19 would chuck the 40-year-old tax attorney. Fucking hey, guy. Ralphie. I'm a fucking... Hey. <laughs> guy. The, I saw I saw him show up. I was like, when she's talking about she's dating somebody, I'm thinking, all right, someone her age. I see this fucking schmuck show up. I'm like, how like how old is this fucking guy? Did he go to war with the father? Uh, like, how old is this fucking guy? Holy shit. Uh, Unbelievable. Oh, uh, I thought they Unreal. Oh no, they are gonna rape the wife though. Because they go upstairs and the... you know what? Well, they they they. I think they threaten it, well, but the one thing I'll give them, and this is this will come up. Prison man, I don't think well, I'm really they're true. threatening it, are they? Uh, what's his name? Kobosh There, he was thinking about raping. Yeah, her. okay. You know the younger criminal, the kind of suave guy who doesn't want to hurt anybody. Yeah, yeah, when he yeah, gets, yeah. When he gets run over by that truck, I thought that was pretty. That wasn't bad. With the you know when he gets yeah, yeah that was that was pretty well shot. I forgot. To, yeah. That Only me. thing, all he had to do was use the phone. Well, you know. Look, it's 1955. I get it. We got to move the story along. I get that we got to have the whole thing happen. But he's in there. He takes out the light. Like, okay, maybe people know what he might look like. But let's be honest. Look, I know people don't like to say this. But most people of whatever race you're a part of usually look a lot alike. I mean, it's hard to pick out. Like, I'll be honest with you. Outside of someone famous, famous, I wouldn't know. If the guy Chuck were to knock on my door right now and he was still alive, I wouldn't know it was him. I'm being honest, being honest with you. I'd be like, hey, who the fuck hey. are you? I don't want any insurance. Hey, you fuck. You want a plane? <laughs> What's the move, guy? You cocksucker. Hey, fucking. Look at this fucking guy over here. All he had to do was stay on the phone, turn his bag, be on the phone, and be like, oh, I'm sorry. Bro, you know, and the guy would be like, boom, I'm going to get some coffee, a donut. Maybe me and my partner go out there and jerk each other off. But we're not gay. All right, this 1955, we're not gay. Well, we're just two grown men. hadn't been invented. No, we have to do what we have to do. <laughs> 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 hadn't been invented then, okay? <laughs> uh, 
Hollywood hadn't pushed its gay agenda on us. Hey, man, it's so woke, man. <laughs> oh, goodness. But <laughs> it's so weird. Like, he just shoots the cop, and then instead, like, he's got enough bullets. Shoot them both. Yeah. He shoots the one. And I will say this the great thing about all these old films, the fucking aim these people have. Fucking bullseyes. <laughs> always are able to shoot somebody no matter it doesn't Stand matter what the they're running, chest. zigzag. It's and it's always a it's always a kill shot. Yeah. Always a kill shot. <laughs> that was a decent scene, and I think that when he was under the wheels I appreciated of that, truck. that he after he got shot and he knew he didn't want to go back to prison, he, he saw the truck coming, he pulled himself in front of the truck yes. to get yes. run over. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, I appreciate yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I appreciate that 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 balls of that part yeah. of the movie. Yeah. I, I really appreciate it. But yeah, that was also what I mentioned. And now it's time. To present the evidence. So there's only a couple of ref, uh, influences in this. Number one. Clooney's Seth is also, as I said earlier, he is definitely has an air of Bogart's character. The balls that Seth has, the toughness of Bogart's character. Yes. I also feel like the ignorance and brashness of Kobosh is maybe a jumping off point for Richie as well. Finding that person who's going to push Seth's character to against his cool, to try to constantly get him riled up and because he tries to play it as a cool yeah. character. Both no, characters try to play cool. Agreed. But when they get when they get riled up, they say it's basically like, you want to fucking really test me? But what I would say, because you were talking about the rape, just like Seth, Seth is not about that. He is appalled at what Richie does. And that's why he, he keeps Juliet Lewis's character away from Richie as as he's known. So he knows that Richie's got ill intentions towards any female. Yeah. And so he knows it. So much like our character played makes him, it makes by him very the great angry. Humphrey Bogart. Yeah, makes him angry yes. as well, yeah. Humphrey Bogart may be a piece of shit, but he's not that kind of piece no. of shit. Because he could have easily had his way with either one of those two ladies. And like you said, he'd been just been out of prison. But I that's not, that's not Humphrey, like, and he's not going to yeah, let it slide. Yeah, yeah. I agree, yeah. Yeah, he's a bit more... Um, he doesn't even really flirt with either of the like, girls, does he? The, 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 the no. wife or the daughter, he doesn't even... No, not at all. Strictly he business. Knows they're pretty. He's strictly business. Yep, and he knows his brother has uh, maybe the hots for the younger one, but he you know he doesn't force nothing on him. Like he doesn't you know. Yeah. There's definitely these two characters from these two films are definitely some DNA for who Seth Gecko is and becomes in our film that we're referencing today. Yeah. Number two, and the other one is the obvious one. The obvious influence is escaped criminals take a family hostage. Now, while this film keeps the family in their home. Obviously, we go on a road trip because we got to get the fuck out of Dodge, out of Texas, and we got to get into Mexico and from dusk till dawn. But that is a lot of the the two influences that this film has on our film. And the reason I would say that is that Desperate Hours is one of those films and plays that got a lot of attention and acclaim for this type of story. The home invasion, the kidnapping yeah. story yeah. that wasn't a thing back in the 50s. So your thoughts. And did you see any other influences on this film from this film. Well, I kind of thought... Number three. Obviously, the father is Harvey Keitel. Yes, yes. yes. I also thought... I also thought Juliette Lewis is Ralphie, isn't she? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? She's not the daughter. Is Juliet or, or is or is Scott Ralphie? Because remember, he's, he's like, I, if, you don't, if you don't say anything to I the... I can't be honest. I know, but he's, he's like, if you don't say anything to, to the cops, I'm gonna. And then he's like, I'm calling the police. Yeah. I'm calling yeah, the police. But I, I always <laughs> felt like I always, I did always think he, Scott was quite a weak character. Yes, you know, in from Dusseldorf. And I think that's just a case of look, there's only so much to go around. Look, he's not just weak. He, I mean, he sucks at throwing the water balloons. He's fucking, he's fucking useless. He deserved to die. Like when Scott dies, you're like, good. You're like, and you know what? He doesn't even deserve my fucking name. All right. That's true. But how dare you? How. <laughs> Who the fuck you think? You want a plane? <laughs> Come here, Scott. You want a plane? This plane, this plane right here. Um, but no, I always I sort of <laughs> thought that Juliet Lewis is 
it's kind of Ralphie's the Ralphie character. She's kind of like this ballsy kind of. Obviously, she's like what ten years older at least. Yeah, she's sort of yeah. playing at that point. But because the daughter as well, I felt like the daughter in Desperate Hours is a bit badly written too. She's not much of a character. I yeah. don't think anyway. But another sort of wet blanket of a character. Yeah. Neither here nor there. Yeah. But little Ralphie. Hey, Ralphie fucking Mook over here. He <sighs> fucking yeah, Ralphie. Yeah, I think Ralphie's kind of like this ballsy kind of character who's ready to throw if he he's is. ready to throw down with these criminals, isn't he? He's like, let's go. You know who Ralphie turns into? I just thought of it. Ralphie leaves Indianapolis, he moves to New York, and he becomes fucking Joe Pesci's character in Goodfellas. He's Tommy. Oh, funny. He changed you his name. Oh, you think I'm fucking <laughs> You think I'm funny? <laughs> Fucking dance, spider dance. <laughs> you may fold on the questioning. Um, <laughs> but um, but no, I think I think yeah. So Juliet Lewis is kind of like Ralphie. She's kind of got this. She's got this ballsy attitude about dealing with these criminal guys. So you know you've got that. Um, and I think obviously, really, yeah, like you say, you know, at the um, motel sort of area, that's sort of mainly contained there, isn't it? The, mm -hmm. the kind of hostage situation. I feel like once yep. they leave the, the motel and they're on their way to the Titty Twister, I think that's where the comparison ends. I don't think there's as much of an influence. I would agree. I would it's agree. definitely there, though, because you have got the... You, ha you can't ignore it. It's definitely there, but I think it's condensed and yes. maybe... A 10-minute sequence. From Dustin, there was going to be a stuck-in-one-place moment, but they didn't want it to be the hostage situation. Yeah. You know, it was going to work better with it being instead of cops surrounding. I mean, you flip it. You're not the cops. You're being surrounded. You know, definitely. But it's the, the, the criminals taking them hostage, you know, flip, flipping it a little bit on what happens in, obviously, uh, Sultan Precinct 13. Yeah. So this time, you know, instead of criminals being brought in, they're going to be the criminals. They're going to bring the, you know, the supposed good guys with them as, instead of the reverse. Yeah, exactly. You don't want to have a showdown in a hotel. You know, you want to get on the road. You want to get to the titty twist. That's a much better, you know, set piece than a fucking hotel shootout kind of thing. You know, works better than the desperate hours. Yeah, I mean, I think that's pretty much when I was watching it last night. I'm thinking, yeah, it's just a, it's just a more condensed version of the home being the same as the hotel or the motel yeah. area. But you know, necessary, and the dynamics between the criminal and the family members is, is certainly an influence as well. Yeah. So yeah, just not as much of it because it's got its own thing going on anyway. The desperate hours with the kind of waiting for the money. Well, you know, but that's what you've got. You've got um, Seth waiting to be picked up, haven't you, from the Titty Twister by yeah. the other criminals, you know, uh, Cheech and Marin's character. But uh, that's a bit flimsy to suggest that. But as mainly the, the, the family dynamic and the initial home invasion, that's where the in, that's where it is influenced from dusk till dawn. So it's a two-hour movie, yeah, but the kind of important weighty sort of factors of the desperate hours are just condensed in from dust till dawn yeah that's that's all i can really say like when you know obviously assault and precinct 13 there's quite a lot of things there where you're like oh i can see why they did this and you were definitely an influence on from dust till yeah. dawn just lesser so but it's definitely there and now it's time to read the verdict in your opinion would you say that our boys QT and Rodriguez were inspired by this film, or did they blatantly rip it off? I wouldn't say they ripped it off because I think they're just a lot, they're a lot looser with it. That may not have even. 
I think that might just be more coincidental than we than we think. With what we can see, comparing the two, you know, I'm not so sure if if it's more of the idea. Yeah, it's not than the actual. It's more the the situational idea it, it, than the actual. It, because you know, comparable. obviously, it's not a full on home invasion. Yeah, yeah, you can yeah. Com- that's comparable more than it is that they oh, they've clearly taken this from you know. It's what if instead of in the desperate hours they stayed at the home, what if they forced them to go on the road with them type of scenario? Yeah. Well, like, that's what they were going to do, though, in the desperate hours. Yeah, it? one of them was going to go with them. Yeah. 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 Towards the end, they're about ready to take yeah. them all. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think that's just a, an idea that's similar. I've got to be honest with you. I mean, although I hadn't seen this, de- although I hadn't seen this desperate hours, I had seen the Mickey Rourke one. I never really made the connection before. So. It's, maybe it's just, do you know what? Maybe it's just more subtle in the desperate hours, whereas in the Salt and Precinct 13, it's more obvious an influence, whereas just a subtle influence. Yeah, with desperate yeah. hours, that's what I would say. In the case of the desperate hours, we find the defendant not guilty of the crime of being a talentless hack who rips other people's movies off. Let's ask our guest some fucking questions. All right. So we're going to wrap this episode up with your wrap-up questions. And your first one is a twofer. Which of the two films that we covered did you enjoy more? I already know this answer. And which of them would you recommend to my listeners? Okay. Obviously, like, like I said, you know, Assault and Precinct 13 is a very important film to me. So I would say this Assault and Precinct 13 is more, in, is more of an influence on from dusk till dawn than the desperate hours so i would have to say that's the film i would say influences it more but that's not to say the desperate hours is not a good movie and hardenfree bogart will blow you away so that's the film that i think influenced from dusk till dawn the most i mean you should just definitely if you haven't if you haven't seen assault and precinct 13 you need to immediately and maybe you just haven't seen it for a long time as well you know, maybe, yeah, I know Salt and Precinct 13, but you might not have seen it for 10 or 15 years. You've got to go back and watch it again. I think you would be amazed. And as you pointed out, the remake is... Shit. Yeah. <laughs> really. Just, that's and that's it a shame, isn't yep. it? Because you've got Gabriel Byrne, you've got Ethan Hawke, and you've got Larry Fish, Lawrence Lawrence Fishburne. Yeah. So, and others. You've got some great character actors in there too. Yeah. So that's a shame. But, yeah, so definitely... I would say Assault and Precinct 13 influenced From Dust to Dawn the most. And you should also just watch it because that's probably one of the best films ever made. And that's, that's all I'll say. Our second question. Did watching these two films open your eyes to new references or influences within Tarantino films? I'd say both do, yeah. Definitely. I mean, it's important to remember that I think, you know, From Dust to Dawn is a Robert Rodriguez movie. But at the same time, we all know what a sort of sponge Tarantino is for with movies and cult movies. And, you know, I think it's difficult when you're talking about on what's on the page and what's on the screen. You know, Tarantino, in this specific case, Tarantino obviously took care of the, the page. Rodriguez took care of what was on screen. But you've even got, you have got some blatant Tarantino shots in, in this film as well, haven't you? You've got the, from the car boot whatever you call that. Yep, we got the trunk shot. The yep. trunk shot, sorry. Yeah, so you've got that. But I see things when I you know, I watch I rewatch Tarantino movies a lot and I watch a lot of movies. And I think I think Tarantino's loyalty lies more with 
exploitation and B-movies than people realise. I would agree. I mean, you you alluded to the, you know, French New Wave and all this stuff. He lives more in the realm of exploitation B-movie cult film, for And he sure. certainly likes to talk about them films more. Yes. You know, you don't hear him talking about Fellini much, do you? You know? <laughs> no. You don't hear him talking about, you know, Goddard or Kurosawa that much, but he'll talk your ears off about Ruggiero Diodato or... Dario Argento or the Shaw Brothers, Toby Hooper, Shaw Brothers, you know. Yeah, so I think, yeah, the more you watch, you can see it in a lot of things, really. So the, really, I mean, do I see more influences all the time? You know, there's things I've heard him mention, there's, there's films I've heard him mention that I haven't even seen yet. So, you know, I'm, I'm likely to see things in them. You know, <laughs> oh, yeah. shit, that's from, yeah. what was it? I think I was watching... Um, I mean, this is a this is very subtle. But I watched um, John Ford's My Darling Clementine the other week, which is you know Doc Holliday and um, why up. But there's a, when it comes when it gives the actors' names at the beginning. One of the actors is his surname is Mowbray, which is Tim Roth's character's hateful eight. Hateful eight. Now that might just I'm just like that. That's no. not coincidence. No, no. But so not. you know, especially that kind yeah, of name. Yeah, that was just such a peculiar name. Mowbray, isn't it? That's such an unusual... An actor in a Western getting a, getting a fake name for a Western he yeah, does. And yeah, so I know I've heard... I mean, I've heard Tarantino slag off John Ford, but I think that was when he was in Django Unchained mode, so he's going to look down on a white director at that time probably anyway. But <laughs> but now time's passed. I think he's, I've heard him sort of talk about him in nicer terms. But yeah, so, you know, I see things all the time. And that's the amazing thing about him really, isn't it, is... Yeah, we've got a TV series coming. We've got another movie to come. You know, that's like, who knows what he's going to reference in those, you know? Yeah. And also, as you pointed out, Robert Rodriguez and Tarantino are like brothers, basically. So it's the meeting of minds, isn't it, with From Dust Till Dawn? Yeah. You've got two people who know a shit ton about movies and are both extremely clever and good at what they do. There's so many things going on from Dust Till Dawn that are just amazing. I'm sure there's a million horror movies we that you could point out that are ref, that, that references yeah. as well. So, yeah, very interesting. Last question. Did your opinion on Tarantino as a writer-director change after watching these films and learning how the sausage is made, so to speak, and if so, in what way? No, it doesn't, doesn't change. I think it just sort of confirms what I already thought about how clever he is and how much I hate people who say just rips things off because we can all rip things off. Not that no, easy, is not. it? <laughs> no, yeah, it's yeah. not. I've seen people do it and you can, and that's so yeah. plain and, you know, yeah. and that's what separates him from the pack. Oh, all he does is rip off other films. Oh, okay. That's that easy. <laughs> so it's that easy to make it. Yeah. So it's that easy to make it in Hollywood, is it? I'll book my ticket tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. So no. That just confirms what we already thought. He watches all the best movies, and he, you know, and when he references or is influenced by something, it has his um, personality all over it. And that's yes. bigger than what he chooses to be influenced by. You know, that's the integral part. The important part is his take on that influence.
And that's a wrap on this month's episode. I would once again like to thank my special guest, Mr. Steve Smith, my Cheeky Bastards podcast co-host, for joining me today. Once again, I had a fucking blast investigating whether or not Tarantino referenced or blatantly stole from the movies that influenced his first collaboration with his best friend, the amazing Robert Rodriguez, with From Dust Till Dawn. Now, you can find the link to all of Steve's podcasts, as well as his socials, in the show notes. And as always, you can become a member of the Church of Tarantino by following us on all our socials. Those links can be found in the show notes as well. Now, if you would be so kind and take a moment to like, review, subscribe, and follow us, the church would greatly appreciate it, as it will help other fellow Tarantino fans like yourself find the show. Now, be sure to join me again in two weeks as Pat Fournier, co-host of the B News USA podcast, joins me for our monthly hymnal devotional as we take a deep dive into the From Dust Till Dawn soundtrack. So until then, I'm the Reverend Scott K. May Tarantino be with you always. This has been a man with an exceptional beard production.